All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. What's up, y'all? This is Questlove, and this is QLS Classic, and this is the second of our three-part series with producer Jimmy Jam. Uh, last episode, we explored his life in Minnesota and, and joining the group at the time and getting fired by Prince. And now this episode, we talk about working with artists like Sherelle, Alexander O'Neill, Patty Austin, New Edition, the SOS Band, the Human League, and uh, also Janet Jackson, all top ten artists. Uh, we also discussed the creative process and songwriting and producing and becoming businessmen. Uh, this is a really, really great episode. I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's go. So, obviously, you guys go to get Alex back, but how does Sherelle we do. enter? We do. We do. Um, so, yeah, so actually, yeah, so Sherelle's the next one. So, Sherelle, you know, after SOS Band jumped off, Clarence had signed Sherelle. She was from Detroit. He said, I signed this girl from Detroit. So she's kind of young and raw, but I think you guys could do something with her, whatever, whatever. I remember we met her, we hung out with her, loved her, you know. Um, and I remember it was the reason we moved back. Sherelle was the reason we moved back to Minneapolis. Uh, we were working in a studio. I don't remember what studio it was, but she had always done backup singing, not a lot of lead singing. Mm-hmm. And it was just a very nervous thing. We were always watching the clock and, and you know, cognizant of the of the budget and it was just this kind of pressure thing. So we knew these guys in Minneapolis that had a studio down their basement and we said, maybe we'll go back to Minneapolis and record and it'll be like a less pressure and whatever, whatever, whatever. And I remember the very first day we walked in the studio, it was called creation audio and it was down the basement of a, of a little house. First song we did was didn't mean to turn you on. Wow. And when that happened, we were like, Terry just said, we need to just move back. To Minneapolis because we can make music anywhere but we should just do it this kind of environment where we can just create and not worry about the high pressure you know the high prices of LA you, know? you recorded in that basement yeah okay now I'm gonna start with the creative process okay how does Jimmy Jim on that synthesizer by the way on this very uh, that's the one that's the right behind yeah that is that's didn't mean to turn you on how does Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis construct a song 
Is it chords? Who does the lyrics? Way. Who does the? There's a lot of different ways that it happens. Okay, so but, let's take. I didn't mean because what what I really want to get into is that's the point. That's the song that I felt that you really started coming on your own as a drum programmer. Mm-hmm. Especially assuming that did you guys do your own remix edits and all that stuff? Yes. Okay, which also uh, QLS uh, listeners continues the the theory that all really masterful great producers were once DJs. awesome DJs. <laughs> so this is the Dr. Dre theory all over again. So, because you're doing a lot of intricate stuff there, and I, I was kind of saving this question for the Control album, but who's teaching you, I mean, who's teaching you these patches and these programming stuff? I mean... I still barely get past page three on the drummer's manual of any drum machine I ever get. And there's no Pro Tools and stuff. Are you editing and cutting tape or like what are you, how are you doing this stuff? Well, a little bit of everything. So didn't mean to turn you on though is real simple. So the DMX, that's a DMX drum machine. Yes, it was. And so I learned the DMX drum machine really from Leon Silvers. Um, He had one. He was, he was one of the, people that just there was always a drum machine laying around the studio and he met a certain point he made a transition where he would cut things with the drum machine but then the drummer from lakeside and i can't remember his name who was amazing mm-hmm. he would come back in and play real drums because because leon still liked the idea of real drums and but he had a metronome and he could just lock right in not all drummers could do that could play with a drum machine mm-hmm. but he could um but he always had one around so i just would always mess around with it um and so, uh, same thing with the Lindrum. Prince always had a Lindrum around. So I just would always mess. I, my whole thing was I would just pick up stuff and just start messing around with it. And I think because I was a drummer, it all just made sense to me. But yeah, I but, never, but, and it's funny, you said you don't get, get past uh, th- uh, page, three. page three. I never picked a manual up. I've never read a drum machine manual in my ah, life. Man, braggart. I'm not bragging. <laughs> I just, I just, it doesn't make sense. It's just kind of trial and error. It's just you just kind of mess around. And until you come up with stuff that that makes sense to me. Well, I'm asking because, like, even like in the bridge of that song, like these these roles that you're programming, yeah, and and the various hand claps, yeah, the, yeah, the spillage and all that stuff towards the end. I'm assuming that that stuff has to be pre-programmed, as in you're thinking in your head, okay, four bars from the beginning, or even the beginning. Before the song starts, like right. again, is this without pro in the age of Pro Tools? Now I could just punch anything in, yes, one, and then copy and paste and do whatever I please. But yes. you didn't have it then, right? So, are you sitting there with the map of the format of the song? No, no. My my thing was always, um, I would always put the drum beat down. That would always be the first thing, and I knew that sometimes there was a format like i knew on that particular song i kind of knew what the format was uh in my mind so um but i wouldn't ever program a song from start to finish on the drum machine i would physically put in a pattern like the beginning of that song which is just the hand claps i think Mm -hmm. that would be one pattern then i'd put the next pattern in which was the main you know whatever that was right then the change was the boom 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 like that would be another thing right so turn the tape on 
press play, go to my thing. Then as the song's playing, I'm thinking in my head, okay, now it sounds like it's a change here. And I just go to the change. And then I go back to the main part, and I go to the change. Now, most of the time, it worked pretty good. I, not I locked the empty? No, not locked the empty at all. I used to drive Whoa, people. Not, I used to, oh, no. No, I used to drive people crazy with that because yes, you drive me crazy, like because <laughs> because engineers would get get it. I'm looking at Steve right now, like, see, I'm not alone, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'd send stuff out to get remixed, and they'd always say, "What's the empty start time?" And we go, "We don't know. Yes! We didn't lock the empty. We just just play. You turn the tape on and you play, and that that was the way we always did it." Um, didn't mean to turn you out was interesting because that song was very heavily influenced by the system. Uh, I can see that. The systems did yes. a lot. Of, the okay. system did a lot of that and that kind of stuff. The difference was they hooked everything together so that it was sequenced, and I didn't do that because I didn't know how to do that. So I never sequenced. There was never a sequenced keyboard. Not even with your synthesizer work and, and no. your bass work. No, you're doing that by hand. By hand. It sounds like eight minutes. Yeah. I so sounds like innocent. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. The whole innocent suite. 12 yeah. minutes long. That's yeah. 9,000. That's 12 minutes playing for, for 12 minutes. Wow. And what and also, fuck? and that's and that's an interesting, and, and, and Innocent is an interesting one too because that's one where we put the drum part down first and then we had to figure out what we were going to put on top of it, you know, that made sense. But that I got from Prince because Prince would do that. Can you answer a question for me? <laughs> Even though I don't know if you were, were you ever physically there for time recordings? No. Uh, other than mixing uh, or anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Because that's the thing. Like a song like The Walk, which is nine minutes, how does he know in bar 176, Mary, sweet yeah, mother, like yeah, yeah. that part? Like does he map out even the dialogue? No. And No. You put the groove down. So, like, literally on the walk, it would basically be him uh, on the bass and uh, Morris on the drums. And they would just play for nine minutes. And so Prince would kind of, in his mind, think, well, this might be a, a verse, this might be a chorus, whatever. This might be just a jam session, whatever. Then there'll be, you listen to it back, you put the chords over the top of it. And then the little horn stabs and stuff you do based on the breaks and some of that other stuff. Like he knew, he didn't know what everything was going to be. You just kind of create it as it's going along and let the drums and the bass line dictate what you then put on top of it. So it's very spontaneous. That's why the, it sounds so spontaneous because it literally was spontaneous. Now you could go back and do it like if you, like if there's a, a lick uh, that Morris would do a on the drums and then you'd hear it and you'd go, oh, let's put a horn line on it. Clink, 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 clink. Okay, okay. Right? Right. But you just kind of took each piece of the song until it was filled, until it was a, a full song. So we kind of took, see, that's the thing. If you think about it, we took a lot of lessons from what Leon did, what Leon Silvers did. We took a lot of lessons from what Prince did. And then we took a lot of lessons from just listening to records that were out and things that we liked and just applied them to the way we record, you know, but we had great teachers. I mean, we had great teachers. There were great records, not to mention all the records growing up we listened to, you know, so, you know, that to me is, is kind of the thing. And so for us, but I, I couldn't sequence. And, and that's the thing. I never opened up a manual. So I didn't know 
I had a DMX drum machine and an OB-8. Okay, they're supposed to talk to each other through the DSX, which was the right, uh, right sequencer. Yeah. We have a DSX has never been used. Never been touched. <laughs> never been touched because I didn't know how to hook it up. <laughs> I, don't, I never knew how to hook it up. I, I, and to the, and tell you, the only th- reason I ever even started sequencing at all was one, I had a drum programmer, uh, uh, or just a programmer in general, named uh, Alex Richburg. Alex Richburg, from, yeah. Who was from New York originally. And Wait, uh, how do you know Alex Richburg? Alex Richburg. He, he, uh, Janet he Jackson albums. Janet Jackson album, yeah. He's Velvet Rope. Era. Velvet Rope, he's all over that. Yeah, yeah. And he was the one that got he me into... Fiends. <laughs> well, he was, the, he was the one that really started putting... Uh, we were talking earlier before we started the interview, we were talking about um, how hip-hop influenced R&B. But... He was a true hip-hop head that was incorporated into our camp, which really, he had the whole kind of hip-hop sensibility from the MPC. That's what he introduced me to the MPC drum machine and all those things. And um, the idea of that type of sampling, because I never sampled in a drum machine. I usually just use like a little AMS sampler or something like that. So he was the one that really opened my mind up to the, incorporating hip-hop into uh you know, our, the way we did R&B records, particularly with Janet, but with a lot of other, you know, acts too. So he was a really important part. But up until I met him, and that was, like you said, Velvet Rope era, so 97, I guess, or something like that. I never, I, and even after that, I remember he would hook stuff up so I, it would be like ready for to sequence. Like, um, what was the one that we did? Oh, God Till It's Gone. God Till It's Gone. He hooked, he hooked everything up together and he said, make a record and don't, do it in this box. Don't do it outside of the thing. And the reason the record sounds the way it re- sounds is because I did the simplest thing I could possibly do, which was go blunt, 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 right? Because mm-hmm. that's all I knew how to do. And it was like, okay. And I said, okay, here, I got something in. Now, what do we do now? And it's like, okay, now we'll, we'll the make song. the song. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? But that's why that turned out like that. And literally when that song was done, I unplugged all that stuff and said, I'm not making records like that no more. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. <laughs> you got and a hit out of it. Got a hit out of it. And, 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 and the only thing after that, and, and, and when I discovered Logic, see, when, when GarageBand came out, I thought, oh, this is cute. But then when somebody said, oh, Logic, it's like, do you know how to work GarageBand? Yeah, it's GarageBand like on steroids. Yes. Yeah. That's when I said, oh, wait, okay, I can do this. This is this makes sense to me. Because he always used Logic um, back in the day when it was hard to use. Right. So I said, oh, I can figure this out. I know the theory of this. But no, all of those records were all just played by hand. Like, I remember, um, what was one we did? Oh, uh, I just heard it the other day. Thelma Houston um, used to hold used me to hold so tight. I love that record. Yeah. But that's all. Right. That's by hand? By hand, whole record. Yeah. All I'm of those records. Man. Just be good to me. That's not loop. Everything, no. No, 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 no. That's all played. Every, all of that stuff. Borrow that's love. That's a long, that's long to be. Yeah, but I had but I had great chops then. Because that stuff, compared, compared to what Prince had us going through at rehearsal. See, Prince prepared me for all that stuff. You know, Prince would have me, uh, like, 777, it's famous, well, I don't know if it's a famous story. I, I told it uh, to a bunch of people, though. Uh, you know, we were doing 777-9311, and my part was just doubling Terry's uh, bass line uh, right. with this kind of OB-8 sound, right? And then I'd do, like, a little string part, and that was it, right? So I remember we were rehearsing a song, and Prince goes, Jimmy Jam, what are you doing with your left hand? And I said, 
nothing, Prince. I was doing the bass line. He said, he said you should um, he says, do the bass line, but then you should do the chords with Monty. Oh. And, and I said, well, it's not like that on the record. And he said, it's got to be better than the record. That was, was always his thing. It's got to be better than the record. It's like, okay, cool. So now I'm like, right? I'm cool. Like, cool. So we finish the song. He says, what note are you singing on the chorus? And I said, <laughs> I said, I'm not singing a note on the chorus. I said, Monty's singing and Terry's singing and Jesse's singing and, and Morris got the main note, whatever. Find a note. I'm like, okay. He says, it's got to be bigger than the record. He's like, okay, bigger than the record. Okay, cool, right. <laughs> so now I'm playing. Seven, 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 ninety-three, eleven. So I'm singing, right? I'm good. We finish. He goes, why aren't you doing the choreography, Jimmy Jam? And I got to dance. I said, Prince, I'm standing at the keyboard. What am I supposed to do? It's simple choreography. You should be able to do it. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm like doing, so now I'm trying to do the, like the little four corner step, mm -hmm. right? and I'm trying to do my pans, and I'm trying to sing the note, and I'm frustrated, and I'm just so pissed off. I cannot do it, right? And I'm just, I'm pissed off. And I think about it all night, and I'm just pissed off. So the next day we come back to rehearsal, he says 777-9311, and I'm just like, oh, here we go. I start playing, perfect. By about the fourth re run through of it, now I'm tipping my hat. I'm taking oh, my hanky yeah. out of my pocket, <laughs> wiping my face. It became so easy, and that taught me work ethic. That that was the thing that taught me that he had a belief, like like a good coach. You can um, always do more. You can always do more. You can't settle. You you know. But he saw that I could do more and push me to do it. So. From that moment on, all the stuff in the studio where you can make a mistake and who, you know, whatever. But no, I mean that was simple to play. To play ten minutes on a song was easy because forget about the rehear the rehearsals were crazy. Side question: Since you brought it up, yeah, has Jellybean ever played it proper once in these shows? No, he can't. He can't play it. I've never heard a drummer play it correctly. The, the drummer that plays it the closest is uh, is Morse. Wow, really? Because yeah, because Morse is a David Garibaldi um, fanatic guy. And that yeah, for our, our listeners that uh, haven't seen any other interviews, we won't mention uh, <laughs> David Garibaldi. I guess Prince pulled a, a Swiss Beats and just broke our hearts by uh, using the the stock program. Do you know what number it was in the in the Lindrum? No, I heard it was like it's one of the high ones, like seventy seven or eighty something or something. He programmed that seven hundred seventy seven ninety two. No, no, have, but it wasn't. No, it was different. Different drummers when different drummers had different beats in that drum machine. Oh, okay. that was that was part of the whole kind of selling point of it was they gave it to different drummers and different drummers programmed their own beats. Do you still have the Lindrum with? Those programs in there? No, or? it exists. I'm sure it exists, but we we never had it. That was always that was always Princess. Okay, that was always Princess. Yeah, okay. LM1. But yeah, no David Garibaldi. But ter but but yeah, that was Morris's dude. If you ever hear Morris play the drums, um, that's he can do all of that Tower of Power stuff like just crazy. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, I I didn't know what a drum machine was at the time, so I spent like all of '82. <laughs> Doing the hand claps and the drum machine, and yeah. someone told me that's a drum machine. I was heartbroken because <laughs> I thought all that stuff was real. Um, so you came back for Alex. Was he we did. happy to see you guys, or was it like it's about time? Uh, 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 well, no, it was actually <laughs> working at this Perkins restaurant. Doing this is, <laughs> you still talking to that person? Pay, I had to pay for that steak. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Alex thing was so after Sherelle, after we did Sherelle, and Sherelle was successful. The next uh, artist that uh, 
uh, Clarence brought us was a guy named Jeffrey Robinson. And this guy was a... No, wow. No, there's no... No, there's no, 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 I don't think every, anybody ever heard of him again. but I, And I don't even know where he came from. We were in Minneapolis now at this point because we'd kind of moved up and we were working at this Creation Audio uh, place we had talked about earlier. So uh, anyway, Jeffrey comes to town. Nice looking guy. Um, I remember he had an ascot. He was very sophisticated in the whole thing and whatever. Now, we had already done the tracks. We had already done, you know, If You Were Here Tonight and... Uh, I think we had done that, Look at Us Now, and another track. I can't remember. Do You Want to Like I Do? We had done those three tracks with Monty X, Monty Moyer. So we showed him the songs, and we said, okay, come on, here's what we're going to do. Now, we figure he's going to come in and kill it, right? So he comes in, and his voice kind of, he had one of those voices with, uh, there's a real fast vibrato. So everything was like, <laughs> everything like sounded into like a that. Fan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, it was a little weird, and we were like, mm, okay, well, uh, whatever. And he said, "Yeah, my voice is skipping." He said, um, "You know, we, we'll do it to anybody have tea, anybody, you know, whatever." So it's like, okay, tea, whatever. Then came back the next day is the same thing. Came back the next day, it was the same thing. So we called Clarence and we said, "Okay, this dude you sent up here." Um, I'm not sure, man. He's a nice-looking dude, nice enough cat. I said, I, I'm not really sure. He said, well, what do you want to do? And, and we said, uh, there's this guy named Alexander O'Neill. And he said, huh, Alexander O'Neill, uh, was he Irish? <laughs> I said, no, Clarence. I said, he's a black dude, man. I said, but, you know, he said, what kind of name was O'Neill for a black man? I said, I don't know, Clarence. I said, but I said, can we put him on the songs? And he said, yeah, yeah, put him on there. I said, okay, cool. So we went over to, to Alex's gig. And Alex was finishing up at like one in the morning or whatever it was. And we said, Alex, I said, we got these songs. I said, can you come over and sing them? Like, I can't remember when we did it that night or the next day, but we like literally did the three songs the next day. Like he sang them all the way just like that. Like just sang them, right? We sent them to Clarence. Clarence said, who's this motherfucker? (laughs) (laughs) Said Alexander O'Neill. He said, man, he said, bring him out here. So we did. We brought it, got a plane, went to... L.A. Clarence signed him on the spot. Did you talk to Alex first and say, "Don't sound <laughs> No, I think I think he knew. He got the. I think he knew. He we learned it for the first time. Yeah, we didn't have to say a thing. But anyway, yeah. But anyway, he got he got signed off of that. And I don't know to this day what happened to Jeffrey Robinson, but he was a perfectly nice guy. But he just he just didn't have it. So we took those same songs. We added, uh, you know, "Broken Heart Can Mend" and 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 then. We figured out. We knew from working with That's Alex. a perfect album opener, by the way. I, yeah. I, I love the the nerve of you guys starting out records, albums with mid-tempo stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I would never thought to... Were you guys also sequencing the records once you were totally. done? Totally, yeah. That was one of the great things about doing records for Clarence, because he totally let us... We did the album but cover. But who opens it? Oh, out, wow. Really? Yeah. All the space? We did all the... We did all of the... Uh, yeah, we did all the all the that cover with the diner and the whole thing. We did the video. Yeah. Like we conceptualized all of that stuff. I mean, obviously we had people do it. I think a guy named Craig Rice did the video who's doing does a bunch of stuff Craig for HBO Rice, yeah. and stuff now, yeah. right? Okay, he did the actually shot the video. But it was all our concepts. I mean, he basically just let us do and so we got really got spoiled. I mean, Clarence was amazing, you know, just cuz we told him 
Clarence had gone in a whole bunch of different things. He was doing an oil company, and he was doing all these other different things. And we said, <laughs> Clarence, you need to be doing music, and we're going to make music fun for you again. You know, Because at a certain point, he wasn't having fun doing music. And we said, we're going to make music fun for you again. And I think we did that. Well, who who opens an album with mid-tempo stuff? Because, like, <laughs> even with SOS Band, I think No One's Gonna Love You opens love up. It, yeah. yeah, Sands of Time. Sands of Time. Yeah, like, that's a risk. No one, but that was a jam, though. Cause, I, I mean, because Loose Ends kind of did it with, with, uh, with what you call it? What's the string. song? Yeah, Hanging on a String, Contemplating. Yeah, yeah, but it's Speaking like... Speaking of Loose Ends. Loose Ends totally, oh, yeah. totally oh. bit. Yeah, biggest, Nick Martinelli. Biggest, <laughs> Nick Martinelli, biggest biter of all time. <laughs> no love lost there? Talk your no, shit, no, Jimmy Jam. No, there's no, no, no. no. Please, <laughs> 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 oh, Jimmy Jam. No, oh my God. no, my thing, my thing, <laughs> my thing, my thing with Nick, because actually, you know, I, I've never met Nick Martinelli in my life. He's just a name on a liner note to me. Um, and I love Hanging on a String, and I love Loose Sins. It was the fact that I remember I read, they were asked about it, and they were like, oh, it sounds nothing like it, doesn't have anything to do with it. And I just was like, oh, come on. Really, now. motherfucker? <laughs> yeah, that, that was the thing to me. It's like, come on, now I'm going to admit that at least if I was influenced by some. I'm gonna throw it out like we just like we just said. You're talking about the on the on the kick drum. I'm like, no, the system, man. That's, yeah, that's, but that's, I mean, but I'm they saying don't know how litigious you were. I mean, you know, you could your lawyers just could have been <laughs> on standby. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just, I mean, to me that that was the thing with that. But no, the Loose Ends records were amazing. The Fifty Second Street records. I mean, a lot of that. I mean, and that's when we knew that our influence wasn't just in America. That it was to the UK and it was like a whole bunch of different places. Wait. You didn't do Tell Me How You Feel? No, Nick Martinelli did that. Does anybody who did BBQ Band's Genie? It's not... Your wish is my coming. I don't know who did it. I think they were self-produced, I think. BBQ Band? BBQ Band. Because when I first heard it, I thought it was you guys. Well, the fir- see, the <coughs> first, uh, I don't know which record, but the first ones were done by the guys that did the Change record, which okay. was uh, the f- their first ones, which was Mar- a guy named Mario Malavesi and uh, Jacques-Fred Petrus. They did the BBQ Band. Because okay. so, to me, it sounded like the Change record when I right. heard it. Yeah. But um, yeah, they were. Huh. We got to get the Change, too, at some point. Yeah, change was warm. That was yeah, an interesting. Oh, oh speaking thank of you. It, what, what yeah. was it? Oh no, change was cool because that, we. Though, right? was I that? heard you guys never got paid for those songs. That is that is correct. Well, we did eventually. It came out of somebody else's budget though, which I don't know. Remember who it was, but <laughs> but no, we did. We went over to Italy to do the change record. We were asked, you know, would we like to produce the change album? And we said, yeah, we'd love to. They're from Italy. Uh, the the no the musicians are actually from America. Uh, from new, mostly New York musicians, as yeah. a matter of fact. Okay. But the guys that produced it, it was this Jacques Fred Petrus mm-hmm. and uh, Mario Malavesi. Uh, they were, I don't know whether they were Italian, I think they're French or Italian or whatever, but the studio they recorded at was in Italy. It was actually in Modena, in Italy, home of Ferrari, which I, did, I didn't know back then. I saw, I saw, we would pass by this place that said Ferrari, and it didn't even dawn on me. That's like the actual Ferrari place where you <laughs> make the cars. Because, right. you know, $150 a week, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't thinking about a Ferrari. But it was, it was a great experience. There was a villa. I remember the first day we got there, they had, you know, they cooked everything for you. They did everything, right? So the first day they brought out uh, pasta, right? And we're grubbing. 
And we kept saying, yeah, more and more. And they're like looking at me more and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we get done and we're like sitting back and then they bring chicken. And we're like, ah. <laughs> we didn't know about the whole courses the whole course, and yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> anyway, but the change record was cool. And, and we did it. It was like a farm in the middle of nowhere in this villa. We were totally bored to death. We would have really appreciated it now. I wish it would have happened when we were a little older and we really would have appreciated how cool of a situation it was. But what it did is it introduced us to Otari tape machines because they had Otari tape machines. Everybody had Studer tape machines, right? Mm -hmm. This place had Otari, and we loved the machine, and we thought, wow, this is a great machine. So um, there's all kind of little – it's funny because every story, there's a, some little thing that that – has influenced or something that we've done that's been significant. And that was a significant thing for us to find those tape machines because we couldn't afford a student tape machine. Right. And when we found those tape machines, we got a great relationship with them and it, it turned out really well. There was a guy in Change, though, named Timmy Allen, who uh, later on did A&R for Jive Records, but he was the bass player. He wrote the song True Love and he wrote uh, on that album and a couple <laughs> other things. Couldn't have been more talented guy, nicer guy, and uh, that was a great experience making that record. And then we mixed with Michael Brower in New York. And we were always used to mixing like one song over a day or two with uh, Steve Hodge. Right. Michael Brower was banging out three songs a day. We were like, going, oh, man. I mean, it was amazing. That quick? Yeah. But he was doing all the Luther Vandross mixes. And we wanted that Luther Vandross sound for the change record. Oh, my God. Okay. Mike. Yeah. Were you? Did you see the snare drum? He has uh, Yogi's drum set from Never Too Much. I'm trying to purchase it. Yeah, he works at Yeah, he, yeah, he knocks him out. He also did Hollow Notes Private Eyes album, yeah. and uh, yeah, I'm trying to buy that. The the Never Too Much. Wow. Matter of fact, I think searching. I believe he said that. Everything that Luther's ever sang on. Yeah, that was, that was a snare drum? Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah, I'm trying to get it. That would make sense. I'm trying to get it. So he knocked it out in three days? Yeah, three days. We said, we said there's I mean, no way. Three, songs a, three, three so songs a day, and I think there was nine songs on the album. Or and you were satisfied the with the mixes? Yeah, the mixes were great. I thought they were great. I was, I was, we were just shocked because we, we didn't know. And that's when we kind of learned the pace in L.A. versus the pace in New York. You know, it's a whole different thing, and that—that that was one of the ways we. But can you that trust out. it? I mean, have you? How many times do you have to recall a mix? As in, in that day, none. We recalled it none, no times. That the, that was the mix. We very rarely recalled mixes. I mean, we once we got it to where we liked it, we liked it. We very rarely recalled mixes. Okay. Very rarely, we would leave mistakes in there, and we would leave. You know, we'd get it to a certain point and we'd just kind of feel like, you know, we'd always joke. We'd go, okay, what, five people aren't going to buy the record because of this thing that <laughs> only we hear? It's like, you know, does it feel good? And, and is it, yeah, it's it's good. And and back then, mixing was um, very collaborative because, you know, you had to have four guys with their fingers Working on the faders. board. And the mix, they weren't automated? In no, not the way. Well, some of them were, but uh, the one we were working on in New York was not automated. So we literally did the mixes and, and the one that we, uh, even the ones that like we did, uh, at creation audio in Minneapolis. So Alexander O'Neill and Sherelle and Shane, uh, well with the recording of change, although we mixed it in New York, but those records, no, they was all done people on faders and 
Everybody man, you know, somebody would be in charge of the mutes and somebody would be in charge of whatever. So it was a performance. And it was just about getting the best performance. It wasn't even about recalling the mix. It was just making a great performance. And I missed that. That that was actually fun. I enjoyed that part of it. Okay, well, let's talk about your early forays into hip-hop. Okay. <laughs> let's uh, talk about it. Captain Rap, Bad Times, and, yes. and the Ice T's uh, Cold Cold Wind Madness. Yeah. Um, so um, those records were basically because we would hang out at a studio in L.A. called Studio Masters. And that was where Leon Silvers did a lot of his records. And um, I remember there was this guy named Cletus Robinson, and he owned a record company called uh, Saturn Records. Cletus. <laughs> Cletus Robinson. That's the blackest name ever. Exactly. And, and, and this dude looks like, Cle- looks like his name sounds, is how this dude looks. You are overalls, then. And, uh, <laughs> and this dude had, uh, I don't know, he had this record, and he just said, man, you know, the track ain't happening on, you know, we need a track for this, you know, record and stuff. And we were like, Okay, cool. And we just moved in the the OB8 and the and the Lindrum and just got down. And you know, once again, Bad Times is another perfect example of just I just played that start to finish, the bass line, just nothing sequenced. And just played it from start to finish and we didn't hear the singing and all that stuff and the rap which nobody really used, the rap. Everybody flipped it over to yeah, the, play the, the side, right? Right. But the girl's name was Kim Ball and she was um, what was her story? She was signed to a group that was signed to United Artists. Um, remember the group Enchantment? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so she was in... Gloria. Yeah, Gloria, Gloria, right? So she was involved with somebody there. My, maybe Michael Stokes. Maybe his okay. girlfriend or, or right. something. And uh, anyway, so they said, this girl Kim Ball is going to sing. We said, okay, great. And we didn't hear it until it was actually done. All we did was go in and put the little track together for it. And we loved it. We were like, oh, man, this is funky and we were trying to make i was trying to make a d-train record quite honestly because <laughs> because hubert eves was from minnesota and, i didn't know uh, oh wow, wow. Didn't know that. what yeah so it, yeah it makes sense now that you say it but i hear it but, wow. i thought he was yeah. from chicago but well, i don't know we that's from, amazing well we knew him from minneapolis because i remember we got a d-train record i have no idea to this day where it showed up but it was on our time tour bus and I remember seeing the record and it said D-Train and we all looked at it and it was a white label and we were like, D-Train? What the heck is D-Train? And then we started hearing the record and I said, oh, this is the record we got. And I looked at it and it was Hubert Eves and I said, oh, this is Hubert Eves' record. And we just knew him from Minneapolis. We were like, oh, these Minneapolis boys. So we were always, you know, like happy and proud of oh, the damn. stuff he did. So, yeah. So I don't know, man. But yeah, that was that. And and the same thing with the uh, coldest rap and and that we didn't know we did the track it was one of those things where you know we just kind of went in and did it i think we got 500 bucks for it or something and that was and that <laughs> so was you like it. didn't know they were going to be a rap record we didn't know the what they were going to be it was just going to be it's just going to be put put a track together and um you know it is what it is i think we knew yes i actually i do think we knew we, they were going to be rap records but we didn't know you know ice t we knew the name sort of captain rap i knew cuz he had done some other stuff um, I think I used to play one of his records even before that, um, if I'm not mistaken. So I ran into him, by the way, at the New Edition Star Ceremony. He came up to me and he said, we worked together before. And I said, we did? He said, yeah. He said, on that on that uh, Bad Times, I was the rapper on that. I said, oh, oh man, that's wow. nice to meet you. <laughs> it, was, it was very funny, man. So, yeah. But no, that that was kind of our first, uh, our first foray into hip-hop. And I had, it was interesting, I remember um, I was coming from American Music Awards or something, and uh, it was when Kid Rock was really jumping off huge, 
And I remember we were walking into a door at the same time, and and, and, and uh, he runs into me, Kid Rock runs into me, and he says, oh, man, sorry, sorry, man. I said, no, no, I'm sorry, man, after you, after you. And uh, he said, hey, man, Jimmy Jam. And I said, hey, what's up, man? He goes, I can't stand it. You can't stand it. <laughs> he said, I said, man, you know that song? He said, man, I'm from Detroit. More I Joe. know all of y'all shit. I said, okay, cool. You know, so it was very cool, man. But that record to this day, man, we were just in Japan and Korea, and they were talking about that record over there. Where did those two records come in the timeline? Like, were those bef- uh, before? S- we were, uh, yeah, they're probably before SOS. Uh, yeah, before before SOS. Because it's probably, uh, we were still working like reel-to-reel, first climax stuff, dynasty stuff. So this is more of an 82 type of thing. And SOS was more of a 83 type of thing. Do you remember the drum machine you used on uh, Bad Time? Yeah, it's a distorted, uh, yes. I think. Oh, you know, no, it wasn't a Lindrum. What the heck was that thing? That's a great question, Quest. I can't remember what the heck it was. It was something so distorted and wrong. No, I, it was right. Right. Well, yeah, well, it was no, right. No, no, I know, I know. I take no, it from great. that record, but yes. trying to figure out how you, yeah. trying to figure out what drum machine you, you, uh, yeah. you use for that. <laughs> yeah, what was that thing? It was whatever was laying around that day at the studio. It wasn't anything that we brought. It was whatever was laying around. We all brought it. <laughs> Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now, can I jump to 1986? Thank you. It's a big joke. So how's the idea even come up that Janet Jackson wants to work with you guys? Okay, so the story there is uh, there was, okay, so John McClain, who was an A&R guy at uh, A&M. A&M Records, he had uh, called us to work on uh, Howard Johnson. So okay. fine. And, uh, yep, so, um, which so fine is one of the most, best records of all time to me i mean it wasn't what an amazing record but anyway so this was like the follow-up album and uh they he called us and said you want to do some stuff on our johnson we said yeah yeah that'd be cool so anyway we did a couple things on him it didn't jump off big or anything but it was great working with him very talented dude and um i remember we were really into steve errington at that point and so we did this record called knees Knees. yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, very (laughs) very you can bring no other body parts (laughs) yeah yeah no it worked so anyway um so then the next thing he asked us, did we want to do, he said, hey, the girl in Atlantic Star is going to make a solo album. Do you want to Sharon work with Sharon Bryant? Bryant. Okay. you want to work with her? And I said, oh, yeah, we love Sharon Bryant. Yeah, that was cool. So um, we, you know, we were like, okay, we're excited. We know we're ready to go. So then we get a phone call, and he goes, and we started working on tracks for her and stuff. So and he got a phone call, and he just said, hey, you know, I don't know how to say this, but, you know, she doesn't really want to work with you all um, Oh, damn. She's got yeah. She's got another producer she wants to work with or whatever. I guess her boyfriend or whoever it was at the time, mm. right? Mm. So mm. we were like, so we were like, okay, cool. You know, that's that's cool, whatever. And he said, man, he said I'm embarrassed, man. He said, so he said, what is it? Is there something else on a, you know that that you would like to work on for us? You know, whatever. And we said, well, send the roster. So they sent a roster. And me and Terry looked at the roster and we're going down the names and then Janet Jackson. We both stopped on Janet Jackson and looked at each other and said, Janet Jackson. So we called John and we said, John, we want to do Janet. And he says, oh, he's, okay, yeah, that's cool. How many songs you want to do? Three, four songs? I said, no, we want to do the whole album. You do? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. Wait, and, was that even an option back then? Because as far as I know, were Illmatic-esque productions a thing on R&B records back then? Were there were different producers. Yeah, track. I mean, the first two Janet, Jack, uh, Janet albums was okay. Like, you're right. You're right. You're right. Speaking of, uh, did you guys did you guys choose Janet because of Jesse working with her on the the uh, the previous Jesse, albums? Jesse, Jesse had yes, because what happened was we actually went were in a session with her on the first album that Renee and Angela did half of it, and I think uh, Leon Silvers did the other half. Yeah, and we were actually in the session with her, and actually. Don't give up this good thing. Yeah, don't give up this good thing. And uh, the one I love was come, come give your love to me. Yeah, that was the one I loved. And um, so we knew she was cool. She was big fans at the time. She mm-hmm. sat front row when we played Long Beach when we couldn't play the forum and played Long Beach. She sat front row with her mom and she came back after and met us and stuff. She was so sweet and all that. So anyway, so we knew her already. We felt like we already kind of had a little bit of a relationship with her. But when Jesse did. Um, Fast Girls and that, we just thought, wow, okay, that's more, she's got like a little attitude to her, because we knew young she had an attitude, 
because when she was doing the whole Mae West thing and mm-hmm. doing the, the variety show stuff, she always had such a personality Sass. and a sassy, right? So we were like, that's what needs to be happening with her to me, is that kind of thing. So that's what me and Terry were both thinking that same thing. So that was kind of the idea. Um, so we said, okay, cool. That's that's what we're going to do. That's what we'll do. And uh, so we had a meeting. And I remember at the meeting, it was her dad and her and John. And I remember they played Heat of Heat by Patty Austin, which was the current record we had just done. Yeah, yeah. And X-rated Patty. And she... <laughs> or is <right>? it lust? Because <laughs> <laughs> she has funny. such a crazy sense of humor. I yep. wouldn't know how y'all get her <laughs> to go that level. You know what, though? She... It was funny. We didn't know her well enough to know her sense of humor. Yeah. She she's did, crazy. She did those three songs in like a day. We Word. did three songs. Oh, my God. We were sitting there... Because we, we, we booked three days. We figured we'll do a song a day. And she tore through whatever the first song we did. She tore through it, the leads in the background, so fast. And me and Terry are sitting there looking at each other going, is there something else to do now? Uh, you, Patty, you want to do the next song? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. And then we did it. And then we were like, uh, okay, well, we'll do the next one tomorrow, I guess. Because <laughs> we read, we, I, unbelievable. I never heard somebody sing that fast. But so we didn't really get to know her. Like, she had a great personality. She was very nice. We were just too young, nervous, doing something for Quincy Jones. Oh, my God. Right. We're trying to do string arrangements, and we're trying to, like, oh, we got to impress Quincy because he's trusting us with this Even artist. at this point? Oh, my God, yes. Oh, that's Quincy Jones, man. Come on, man. But y'all jamming loose. Yeah, I mean, but that's at what point Jones. were y'all, like, <clears throat> thriller? <laughs> we jamming. Yeah, like, what point <laughs> were you, like, all right, kiss my ass, Prince. Uh, <laughs> Control. N- no, never really. I don't. I don't think we. I don't think we've ever felt that way. Um, because to were, me, it's, were you in the audience the night that he was taunting you guys about? I want to hear this on your records. Yes. I mean, I I never took it as a real insult. I just like okay, he's giving you guys props. Like, what did you? I took it as an insult. Oh, because he, he did. Yeah, because he. He came by. He came by. Uh, I remember he drove by my house um, right after the Control album came out, and uh, he like threw the CD out the window or did something. You lying? Uh, yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. Legendary so, hater. Yeah. So it was. It was weird, and I, and I remember thinking because I used to, he likes it. Right. Well, I I realized my mom told me my mom was the one that would always say, you know, when people do that, it means that they really they're jealous of you for something. And I'm going because I'm always thinking to myself, how the hell is Prince jealous of me? I said, that dude is the most talented dude ever in the history of people, period. How is he jealous of me? I can't even I'm nowhere near him because you're you're inside the bubble and couldn't be outside to see it. But. Yeah, well, that literally took over black music. No, I get, I get the result of what it was, but I never, I never felt like I just felt like we did our job, like we, like we set out to do, like with the control album. Our whole thing was, and I, I think I've been quoted on this a few times. In our neighborhood that we lived in at the time, there was uh, in L because we were, we were, we had a still had a place in L.A., and we would drive up the street and you'd hear music blasting out of everybody's. Mm-hmm. homes right and we just wanted to be that record that everybody was blasting out their home 
And so it had to be funky, it had to be aggressive, it had to be loud. There was already, I mean, females weren't really making those kinds of records. Those records were all rap records or whatever. And we wanted to make that kind of record because we felt she had the attitude to pull it off. And so that was the whole thing. And um, that so the the be- one of the best days of my life was actually when the album came out. And I remember driving up that same street and hearing that record blasting out of everybody's uh, house. Right. And at that point, forget whether where we're at the charts or where we're at at sales. I felt like we did what we accomplished. We accomplished what we set out to do. And um, I hadn't really felt that way, honestly, as a producer, I never felt like we, the first record we did that actually turned out in real life, the way we heard it in our heads, was The Finest by the SOS band. Oh, wow. That record, we heard it in our heads because we said we got to switch up from the 808 thing. We did Broward Love on that album. Right, because they said, because the record company's like, well, you got to have another one that sounds like, and we said, okay, fine. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do that. But we got to, yeah. But, but we oh, got so they different... actually asked for like a oh, e, totally. an e minor? Yes. <laughs> Just be good to me? Yes, they did. <laughs> really? They did. Yes, they did. Yeah, they said, you got to have another, one. another say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they, they did. I, it was, and, and so we were like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. But that's not what we really hear for them. And when we did The Finest, it was like in our heads, we were like, this is the cut for them. Like, it was about the space of that song. The best, the, my favorite part of that song is just the fact that it stops. Right. Just love that. It just stops. Right. Well, that's... The Finest. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's some about... See, because that song's sophisticated. And I always thought the SOS band was really sophisticated because even from Take Your Time to Do It Right, you're not hearing songs that have glockenspiel in it. You know what I'm saying? So that was the thing. But that record actually came out the way we thought it would... We wanted it to come out. What What is it about... I think this is one of the first questions I asked you on Twitter when uh, I realized that that was actually you. Uh, hey, I finally got verified, by the way. On, yeah, I saw, uh, you, I saw, saw your you know who did that? Damn, Damn Funk, Funk did that. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Or Dame Funk. Dame Funk. Dame Funk. Who? That's cool. Uh, what is it about um, E flat? My, I know you said like you know whatever the song calls for in my head, that's what I make it. Right. But I mean, a lot of your is there by design? Do you feel that 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 E flat minor is like the black? <laughs> the black key, the black key, like the no pun intended. That experience, no. I mean, some of your your, your yeah. best funk songs for what have you done for me lately? To yeah, the finest to, you know, a lot of your grittier, funkier songs are done in that key, yeah. which, I mean, that it allows you to just hit all the black keys and not it's never a wrong key. That's right. That's but right. What what D minor was for James Brown? I almost feel like. E flat. Well, that I used to identify it as Stevie Wonder's key, uh-huh. but now I—that's I, the Jam and Lewis key to me. Like, is it something about, or is it just the singers you pick? Their range is strictly in that that particular. Or am I overthinking it? <laughs> <laughs> you're probably overthinking. The latter. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, uh, never mind. Okay, no, okay. no, you're not over. You're not overthinking it. 
But the simple the simple answer is because it's a funky ass key. Um, it's 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 funky because E traditionally was always the lowest note on a bass. Yeah. On a traditional bass. If you go one half step lower, it's even funkier. Because it's all about just the lowness of it. And it was something that a keyb- as a keyboard player, see, a bass player couldn't do that. They could tune down, I guess, if they wanted mm-hmm. to. But no, a bass player couldn't go to E flat, but a keyboard player could. So because most of our stuff was... That's right. All your E flat joints are keyboard... They're all keyboard Wow. Bass. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. I, I don't know. I, I have a personal disdain for for weak E minor songs mm-hmm. like you know because basically it's like okay thank you for letting me be myself I'm taking Rhythm Nation sure. out of this I'm not trying to insult I'm just saying that that's such a mountain to climb I feel like everybody that does anything in, in E minor is like that they're, they're, they're the mountain Fiji the Mount Fiji to them is Thank you for letting me be myself. It's like, right. Okay. Yeah. I'm in here from Get the Funk Out My Face to all those songs <laughs> yes. in that key. Yes. Which, I mean, there's some cool ones like maybe Glide by Pleasure or that sort of thing, but I I don't know. I, I'm not a fan of funk bands that that do songs in, in, in that key. Right. And I know it's supposed to be in that key because it's easy to play. It's but. the lowest. But it's also the lowest. It's the lowest. So it's just, it kind of turns out to be the funkiest key. But so the idea of going a half step lower was always just something about it. Fake's an E flat. And I think fake's, uh, right? Yeah. And uh, I think encore's an E flat too. Yeah. Sure. They are. Has, like yeah. a lot of your dance classics are in yeah. that key. Which yeah. I just think it's a funky key. It is. Before we get back to Janet, and this is going to circle back around, can we talk about The Secret? Sure. Uh, what was The Secret, and where did all those songs end up that were going to be on that project? Ha! <laughs> okay, so when, we, so when we were booted from the time, the thing that people always ask were, uh, was, uh, when are you guys going to put another band together? And our answer always was never, because we've already played with the best band we could ever play with, so we're never going to put a band together. However, we will do a project, and it'll be me and Terry, and we'll probably add... Our fantasy at that time was to add a guitar player uh, girl. And we were going to be called The Secret. And um, we did. We started recording tracks for what we thought was going to be a secret album, probably around 84, 85, something like that. Um, Some of those tracks have seen the light of day. Um, What Have You Done For Me Lately was a secret track. (laughs) Whoa. Um, (laughs) There's another song on that same album called You Could Be Mine. Yeah. That was a secret track. And... uh, and as a matter of fact, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that what have you done for, for me lately uh, in our story. So we had done the album. The album was totally done. Uh, we sent it in. John McClain listened to it. And as all A&R people always say, I just need one more. And I'm like going, John, you got control. You got nasty. You got when I think of you. I mean, you got your singles, man. What do you need? I just need, there's something more. I need one more. So anyway, John. So you planned on a 4-4, four, 8-song. Four, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were done. We thought we were good. In your mind, 
what was the fourth song on side A that was oh, going to close? I don't it? know because we didn't know because we hadn't at that point we hadn't sequenced it. It was okay. not sequenced. It was okay. just that we we just felt we were done. We we got enough songs. We're good. Okay. So did you record any extra, or were those nine songs it? Um, I, we did record actually extra. We recorded a song actually. There was a guy named Hammy uh, that played with H uh, A Hammy, Hammy Wave. The I hate Hammy you Wave. right now. Hammy Wave. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was with Real to Real. Wow. He played with Real to Real, and he actually did a song called uh, "Hungry for Your Love." Uh, that we recorded with Janet. It's really good. It's it's very come give your love to me. It's kind of okay. in that vein because we said, can you, we get a song that has that kind of uh, you know that kind of new wave pop yeah, yeah. type of thing? Yeah, <laughs> to so, do the Eddie Murphy white people yeah. exactly exactly <laughs> right. Dude, yeah, yeah, did he get Carlton. replaced by yeah. he doesn't even know I'm alive? No, he doesn't even know I'm alive. Can, wait, can I ask? Wait, before you mention, yeah, can I guess? Was that the first song you guys worked on? Yes. Fucking, I'm a genius. I'm a goddamn genius. I'm a genius. I am a genius. Okay. Good thing you have a radio show to proclaim. <laughs> Shut up, Steve. Okay, that's all I wanted to know. <laughs> Steve ain't said shit for three hours. How do you tell that? How do you tell that was the first one? Like it, it just sounds so different from the rest. It of just yeah. felt like. But the thing they is, they were still feeling each other out. But, like. He doesn't even know I'm alive is probably the only thing that's really close to like boogie. F- oh, okay. Okay. Like that felt like it could be released in '83. Like it could have been on one of the first two albums. I yeah. almost didn't believe yeah. you guys did it. And yep. all right, to to slight confession, when I was working at Musicland at Sam Goody's in high school, this cat named Spencer. <laughs> yeah. Had me believe that he was the Spencer Bernard. <laughs> Oh, that wrote that song. Oh my god, that's great. So, <laughs> yeah, but he's just having to work with me. Yeah, I was gullible in high school. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, I, it it fit for a reason. It it's a it, like he doesn't even know I'm I'm alive. Was I felt that was the blackest record as far as the two step barbecue yeah. boogie. Like it felt like on the beat by the BBQ band. BBQ band. Or that sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas, even though the other songs were relentlessly funky, yeah, it was class and polish. And I felt that you guys were really planting your flag in Minneapolis and saying, "Now we're the standard." Yeah. And it's a great bridge between you know the uh, two right. songs and then the two yeah. songs that end the record too. Yeah. So. Well, okay. So yeah. So you're absolutely right. It was the first song we did, and what and how it happened was when we knew we were going to record Janet, Spencer Bernard uh, and uh, Lisa Keith were married. Oh, uh, okay. And uh, so Spencer did production and writing and stuff for us. He had his own band called King's English that never, ever saw the light of day, but was great. Very great title. New, very uh, Duran Duran-ish uh, type, type of stuff they were doing. Black dudes? White dudes. White oh. dudes, all white. Spencer there. is white. White Spencer's white. Oh, so I is, didn't even so know. is Lisa. So, so is, is Lisa, Lisa Keith. Right. Yeah, Lisa Keith. Is yeah, white. Lisa. Yep. Yeah. Making love in Making the rain. Making love in the rain. rain. That's wow. Yeah. yeah. Wait, you, compl- you completely ignored her solo yeah, album on Perspective Records in 19. Oh yeah, you okay, should. Check you this. super nerds. <laughs> yeah. Okay, super nerds. Yes, you you finally. I didn't know that. Yeah, you should actually. Li- you, you her solo album is very good. 
It's very good. She's an amazing singer and you amazing and I are writer. You and together in this. This or is the first time ever. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just happy. Thank I know you. who she is, and I, she sounds so black when she sings. That's ill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she's amazing. Janet is singing backgrounds on that, right? Yeah. But it's Lisa's yeah, they're lead. Singing, yeah, that's Lisa's lead. Yeah, they're singing together on the background. Damn. I just thought Lisa was like, like, so, so Lisa was like our background, our background secret weapon. Like she was on a ton of records. Uh, if you remember the is kind that of her reggae, Chris says, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, and she, yeah, she's white. Yeah, she's all over <laughs> wow, yeah. like Bobby Caldwell. <laughs> yeah, white she's on a bunch of records. Uh, Why should I cry? Uh, Nona Hendrix. Yeah, Nona Hendrix. Yeah. That's her on that. And uh, trying to think, there's another one that she's pretty really prominent on too. Uh, she's I'm, I'm blanking now, but no, she she was like the secret weapon. She we used to was that her she on sure uh, was. was that her on a uh, pillow as well on that her Bedford album? Was she on that one? Yes, yeah, pillow. Yep, I that's love her that record. Yep. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, show yeah. over. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> we only made it to '86. Yeah. So so he doesn't know I'm alive. Yeah. Just yeah. to just yeah. wrap it up. Yes. So we said to them, we're going to be doing Janet Jackson, and if you guys got a song, do it. So they wrote it, she demoed it, and for us, it was, it became the song that when Janet came to town, and we, you know, the story is that we didn't do anything in the studio for like four or five days, that's absolutely true. We ca- she What'd came, y'all do? Hung out, got to know her, talked. Um, so that's important. Yes. Yeah. yeah research. Yeah. yeah. Research for them lyrics, man. <laughs> that was. Can we go to dinner tonight? That was the. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That was that was the, that was the key to that, and 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 so so truly, she came. I mean, we went to movies. We went. We hung out at the lakes because the lakes in Minnesota are amazing in, in the summertime, and this was like June, and uh, we just kind of hung out, and then after about three or four days. She said, uh, when are we going to start working? Yeah. yeah. And we said, uh, well, we've already been working. And we showed her the lyrics to Control. Wow. And she said, oh, wait, this is what we've been talking about. Because she told us the whole story about leaving home and she's going to get her own place and this whole thing. And we just worked making mental notes. And then Terry would go home and, like, jot notes down and stuff. And we started, like, okay, let's figure this out. And so when she, once we said that to her and she says, well, wait. So the album's going to be like whatever we're thinking about and like whatever I think, that's what the album's going to be. And it's like, yeah. It was like a light bulb went in her head. She was like, okay, well, I want to talk about this and I want to do this and I want to do this. I mean, it's like, it was like, because think about her albums before were all, Leon did a bunch of songs, go in and sing them. Um, you know, Jesse did some songs, go in and sing them. Giorgio Moroder did some, or people out here, whoever it was, go in and sing them. I mean, that was it. We were actually asking her input. And she and it was at a point where she really had something to say, and she didn't think of herself as a songwriter, and technically she probably wasn't technically a songwriter, but the ideas and what we talked about were what became the records. But I mean, she's the, credited on the record. Oh, absolutely, because the records wouldn't exist without her. We wouldn't okay. write. We wouldn't write control without her. So, I mean, at what point are you guys actually in a room together as you three and writing songs? On that album, not at all. Okay, no. That album was sitting in a room like this, telling stories, and like you would say something, and we go, oh, "That's cool," and we write it down. And, and then both it, of and you are, are wordsmiths. Yeah, I'm trying to figure but Terry, out who's well, no, the strength. Oh, Terry's Terry's Terry's, Terry's I, the I, poet. Call, I call him lyric master. See the rhyming dictionary up there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my God. <laughs> You're right. Okay. So did nasty come from like a funny story? Because I'm trying to figure yes. out these are all okay. Yes. Okay. Nasty nasty came from one of the first days we were hanging around. So there were there oh, was damn, a club. It was a James DeBart story. There was a <laughs> <laughs> there was a there was a club uh downtown Minneapolis. I can't remember what it was called. And we were all hanging out. And we were actually we weren't even in the club. We were just kinda it was kind of in a building. Uh, that was like an office building. So that you could just hang in the lobby. You never had to really go in the club. You could just hang out, right? So we were all just kind of hanging out. And uh, these guys came up and started talking to Janet. And uh, they were kind of saying some kind of interesting things to her, right? Mm-hmm. So we're kind of watching. We're, you know, we're just kind of watching. We're just not doing anything, right? And she keeps looking over at us, like, would the come over and help me look? And we just kind of stand there, and we're just kind of looking at her. And then people start saying to us, "I think those guys are bothering her. Why don't you are you going to go over and say something?" And we're like, "No, well, we ain't going to let nothing happen. We, we got an eye on it. We're, we're all good." So after about ten minutes or so, she comes over to us and she goes, and she's funny because you got to remember she's like eight. I think just to turn eighteen at that time, and was still very sheltered and very like this little girl. And she said, "Did you see what those guys were doing?" And we were like. Well, they were talking to you. Oh, my God, but the things they were saying, and oh, my God, why didn't you come over and help me? And Terry said, well, obviously you didn't need any help. You're not standing right here right now. And she said, oh, yeah, I guess that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so those kind of moments needed to happen for her to get to that. But she said, I don't like nasty boys. I don't like nasty something, something. And Terry's like, okay. Like that. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, so... That was the way. So the hanging out part where we weren't working, we said to her, you know, we're already working. So, so she needed life experience for she, you to sing, for her to sing about. It. Exactly. Because that's what's, that was what's going to make the album her. Believable. It's good. And it's her. Yeah. And, and that was the whole thing. So um, he doesn't know I'm alive was basically because it was already done. When we went into the studio, we said, okay, we got a song for you. And we just went in and, and sang it. It was already demoed. It was already done. And that gave us our insight on what notes she could hit, what couldn't she hit, um, just all kinds of things, the kind of right kind of mic to use on her. It was almost like the test ground for her, but also a song that we all liked. So from that point, then everything else kind of jumped off from that. How my, did you... Oh, oh, I was going to say, my question for you about Janet uh her background vocals, you talked about how you were a big fan of America and all that stuff. Yes. Um, to me, that was always her superpower, more so than even the dancing and all of that. Like, her background vocals were just always amazing. Her um, and Ralph Tresvent. Yeah, her same thing. Ralph, that's right. So did you guys, did you arrange it, was it just by ear, or as a keyboard player, did you, like, actually play it out and say, okay, this is your note, Janet? And that would, that would, with Janet, I would always do, I would always have her sing the notes in the chord which isn't the normal way to stack vocals. Um, Because what happens, of course, when you're playing some on a keyboard, you have notes that are dissonant to each other Mm -hmm. where they're they're right next to each other. And it always, singers are, they can't hear that most of the time. It throws them off to hear that. And so, but we worked up uh, over time, we worked up a thing where she would just trust me. Like I'd give her a note and it would totally sound so wrong. But then when you play uh, Love will never do it, without you is a that, great example. That's a great example. That's a great example. Uh, Body yeah, that loves yeah, you yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 Oh Jesus Christ, yeah. 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 So so that was the thing. But she would she would just do it. And like at a certain point she would quit going she wouldn't even say that doesn't sound right. I would just go, trust me. And she goes, Oh I trust you, I know. And I'd be okay. 
And she also had the stamina, where she would stay in there for hours and hours and hours. And we'd stack every note at least four times. So if it was a, you know... Four times a note? At least, yeah. Wait, so, there's no Pro Tools, though. Well, okay, so... 48 take, tracks? No, because we didn't start with 48. We only had 24. So what we would do is you would make... Uh, we would take the vocals, but everything would always get bounced down on the spot. So... We would, and it was it was always strategic. Like you, you could you could have uh, we'd make a, a, a work we'd make a work tape. Because right. remember, we're not going off of we're not using Simpty. All right. Oh, so God. we so I we hate y'all. so you could <laughs> so you could do the, you could do the track, and let's say you used I don't know nineteen tracks or whatever. You could take those two tracks, bounce them to two, bounce them to two tracks, right? Put them onto a half inch tape or whatever. Play the half inch tape back to the 24 track and now you have two tracks now that leaves you with 22 tracks to work with well, technically 21 because you couldn't go on the simpty track and and you weren't supposed to go to the track next to the simpty 23 right but we always broke you still did that it, rule right? yeah we broke that rule so <laughs> anyway so that would give us a thing so if we did a harmony so let's say we did 16 tracks so a four-part harmony four times 16 tracks we'd take that harmony bounce it to two tracks so now it would just be a stereo mix we couldn't change it and we would always trust that it was good, that it was okay. Yeah. And so it was great, though, because you couldn't go back and do stuff. And normally the decision you made on the spot was always the best decision. It wasn't about going back and tweaking it and, oh, we should have done, you know. It's like, Has the no, no, song no. bit you in the ass during the mix down? Like, ah, damn. Like, uh, No, actually not not really. We had, <laughs> we had an engineer back in the day. Uh, we had an engineer named Tavi Mote. Back when we were doing a song called Heartbreaker with uh, Climax, which I'm not even sure whether that song actually... Yeah, it did come out. I think it did. Um, but uh, it was on one of those 24-hour sessions, and mm-hmm. he decided that uh, he could spot erase something on the on the tape, on the master tape, a, a vocal thing. And we were like, no, it's okay, Tavi. We can just mute it on the board. No, no, I can do it. I can do it. And so normally on tape, what you'd do is you'd put the tape into the position and then you'd hit record. But you wouldn't go p- play the tape. You'd just hit record and just get right. rid of that one little spot. Yeah. Uh, he said, no, I could do it on the fly. So mm, it's like, mm. okay. <laughs> and the word was <laughs> the word was fresh. Let me get this ready. <laughs> Let me get it ready. Okay, here we go. So this, the, the, the lyric was, uh, a heartbreaker so fresh, right? And then there was like a fresh click. So he said, I'll get rid of it. So he goes, we do it. A heartbreaker, so fresh, click. Oh, I missed it. It's okay, man. We, we, we can just mute it. No, no, I got it. A heartbreaker, so fresh, click. Oh, man, I missed it again. No, it's okay, Tommy, really. No, I got it this time. A heartbreaker, so fresh. <laughs> I, think, I think I got it. And we're like, yeah, you got it. <laughs> yeah, half the damn word. And and it made us change the song, so that instead of instead of it saying that, it would say it every other time. Well, so we would just go, uh, "I'm so good, I'm such a mess," and then we'd leave it blank. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, so no, but but you know that was a crazy mistake, and that never happened again, and we never work with Tavi again. <laughs> wait a minute, wait, you just said something though. Uh huh. So, if you really didn't believe in Simpty and weren't lining up stuff, then how did those cool summer mixes turn out so perfect? Because we would wild sync 
I'm a DJ. I can I take... hate you right now, man. <laughs> so, so you just cool, live the cold summer mix. Yeah, the cold summer mixes were fun. So hell yeah, they were fun. Yeah. So we would. So we would just take. I usually would take like the 808 or something, and I would just sync it. Like so, I would just have the 808 on a track or two tracks or whatever. I'd play the original tape, right? And then I'd. Uh, and then I'd turn the drum machine on at the same time. I'd kind of adjust the speed. When it locked up, I'd hit record. When it drifted, Yo, I'd stop. And then we'd start it up again. And when it hit, and then I'd go in. So it just it just was a process. We had it we had it down. We still vocals the really same way. A DJ. Yeah, I, I was. I can't do any of that stuff anymore. But <laughs> oh my god! But no, I could man. match. I could match. I could match that kind of stuff. And then we go back, and then and then you know just re re record the uh, the keyboards and stuff on that. The, I'll tell you an interesting. Uh, I'm sorry, every story t- veers off. Um, the cool summer mixes is the reason we ended up working with George Michael. So when we did Monkey, right? Um, Monkey, if you remember, he had Monkey on the album on the record, mm-hmm. right? right? On faith, yeah. And he called us and he said, "Hey, I want you guys to do a remix of Monkey." And we said, "Okay, cool." And we said, "Well, what what do you want? What are you looking for exactly?" He said. He said, okay, you know those cool summer mixes you do? Talk. He says, you know how you put chords on it, but it still stays funky? He said, that's what I was trying to do on that record. And every time I tried to put chords on it, it wouldn't be funky. And we were like, okay, yeah, cool summer mix. Okay, yeah, yeah, we got it. We can do that, right? So then when he heard what we were doing, he said, oh, no, I got to resing it now. Ah. And oh. so that's how it turned from a remix to a production. And that's how it ended up going. If you have the version of the album that was made after, I don't know, a million copies or however they had yeah, already my version it. had your version on it. Yeah, it had our version on it. Because that was what he always envisioned the song as being. And um, Have you heard the Nasty Cool Summer Mix? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the Diamonds? They, they released it on the... Um on the, oh, like, that's the right. faith yeah, yeah. Okay. box set of the 25th. No, so he's talking about the Herb Alpert remix. In the, no, I was talking about the Diamond yeah. Cool Summer oh, remix. Oh, Diamonds. Yeah. And the Nasty... I'm on tripping. the 12 inch, on the 12 inch. Yeah, yeah, the 12 inch. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll totally, play it for you like, later. yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, damn, this cool summer mix. Had, are, th- are there mixes that didn't see the light of day that you guys did? Um, No, I don't I don't think so. So they, um, okay. I think, I mean, we pretty much did them. We always did. I mean, I love doing it. It was always a lot of fun. And, and I always liked the idea of. Um, it was really two chains of thought because sometimes remixes back in the day, a remix was just, um, you know, the drums would be fatter or it would, it would literally be a remix where you wouldn't really be changing a lot, but just more the sounds, you know, at an echo here, you do that. But I felt that was the best lesson you guys learned from Prince because the first time I heard someone totally like that little red Corvette remix, that totally, I was like, oh, you put something in the relative minor and make it a whole new song and that's sort of thing and that's what you guys were doing to like those songs like totally making them new again right which i thought okay now maybe she'll do this in concert that way and that sort of thing sometimes she did actually sometimes she did which was kind of cool but uh no i i i enjoyed doing that it was just a, a cool creative way of doing it i remember we did uh like one of my favorite ones was um crucial by new oh, edition oh, yeah. hell yes yes. Yeah. yes that was one of my favorite that remix yeah, yeah. that's on the new re-release they just put out. Yep. Yeah. See, I like that kind of stuff. Was always really cool. Is and that one where LL wrote 
Mike Bibbins rhyme and he gave him a shout out for that. Okay, I, I, I have two things we need to talk about really quick. Okay. Yes. One, uh, my favorite remix you guys ever did was uh, or the 12 Inches, uh, Sherelle's Fragile, Handle With Care, with yes. the extended percussion outro, yes. which is a gift from God. Thank you very much. Wow. Um, <laughs> second, New Edition Heartbreak album, The Interlude. That's what, is, what is Ralph saying? Yo, Jam, hit the button now. Okay, so what he's saying is... <laughs> What the he, pussy button. Yeah. <laughs> He's saying the Alps button. Okay. The Alps button, right? But what it actually is, is the aux button. See, that's oh, what I thought. Shit. That's what I thought it was. But it never sounded shit. like that. Okay. Because they never called it the aux button. The they just knew button. in the middle, the Alps button. So they knew in the middle of the board. There was the button that you pressed when you wanted to hear it loud over the speakers. Okay. Whatever we were mixing, and it was this button, and it said aux on it. And that was what it was. You pressed that button, and then everything came back loud and on the big speakers. So that was the whole thing. So every record, when we got done, they would say, and it just turned into this kind of running thing, and we just said, oh, let's put that on on that, on the record, because it's just kind of funny. But yeah, I've been trying to figure is. that out for a long the time. The Alps button. Wait, now, okay, okay, okay. I see. Now I gotta hear. Put your mic, don't even sweat it. Jim, hit the Alps button. Now! No. <laughs> hit the Alps button. Yeah! So, That's funny. But no, we, we, we love doing... Once again, that was an album. The great thing about that album, we talked about hearsay. We, we didn't talk about it, but we talked about it offline. Those records, we controlled those records. The sequencing of the records, um, all of the songs, even if we didn't do them, we were like the executive producers. And so the ability to put, to humanize those records by putting little things like that into it, um, or the interludes on Hearsay, where they're at a party and the whole, th you know, or whatever. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Yes, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, exactly. So, I mean, that to me was why those albums, they were actual albums to me. Mm -hmm. And that was always... It was like a running concept. Exactly. That. And that was that was always the goal. And the sequencing was always really, really important. And and at a certain point when everything became very piecemeal and you did your one song and you really had no say-so, I I never liked the idea of that. But, I mean, it is what it is. You just do what you're, you're asked to do two songs, so you do your two songs. But I like the idea why, of well, really... I always wanted to know why, with the Human League's record, was it that concept not allowed to fly? Like, was that more of a tug-of-war situation or just... Human League was interesting because there was a lot of... Um, uh, well, I, okay, so first of all, Human League was a John And how did you guys called... get them to say swang? Like, <laughs> swag. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were up for anything. I mean that that they were very cool. I must say, uh, and Phil Oakey particularly, the lead, the lead singer, was amazing, dude. Mm -hmm. um, amazing, dude. Um, you guys so, flew over there to do it, or no? They flew to us. Okay. So it was weird. So you got these guys coming from England, not even London, England, but Sheffield, England, which is you know mm -hmm. small town, coming to Minneapolis in the dead of winter. Uh, to work with, you know, two blokes, two black blokes, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was a bit of a, a culture shock, I guess I would say. And uh, the underlying um, kind of uh, elephant in the room, that whole record, was that uh, Phil, the lead singer, was going out with one of the girls in the group. And Rumors so, time. So, uh, 
Um, I think it was Joanne, I think, the dark-haired girl. Okay. So it set up this interesting thing, because they had already written a bunch of the songs themselves, and they just wanted us to produce them, and that was great. But then they wanted us to add our own songs to them. So it was like, okay, cool. And uh, that was the first album that Steve Hodge actually engineered um, for us, because we engineered the Control album basically ourselves. Um and Steve kind of fixed it because we recorded it totally <laughs> wrong when we did it. Right. But he fixed it. But he said, I'm going to come up and show you guys how to record. So that Human League is actually sonically is probably one of our best dubs because it's, it's really done well. But the idea of creating was interesting because, you know, we had the songs. They were down with the songs. But in particular, Human, um, Terry did the vocal on that song, produced the vocal on it. And it was like a week, at least a week of everyday because think about you almost have to unteach Phil how to sing because Phil was always very robotic and always very yeah. stiff. And that's bad. what I'm saying. You made them sound human. <laughs> yeah, human. <laughs> but that took it took a lot of so Terry. That was a, a Terry Lewis masterpiece to me. And I remember hearing the finished vocal and just going, "Man, that's amazing." And I remember watching his face as he listened to cuz after he did the vocal then Terry comped the vocal and everything and I remember watching his face and he just was like amazed how he sounded, right? And so we went in and when we did the backgrounds, actually the backgrounds on the song is Lisa Keith and Terry. They're the ones that are doing the ooh human. It's a combination okay. of those guys cuz Terry used to also be Mr. Background. We used to call him Mr. Background. So, um anyway, I remember we played it, and Phil was like, wow, that's really good. We were all like, wow, that's great. That sounds great. And I remember the girls being like, who's that other girl singing on the track? And we said, oh, uh -oh. it's, uh, yeah. We said, oh, that's Lisa Keith. Hmm, not sure we like that. Not sure we fancy that. Um, such and such and such and such. What, you know, we, we didn't get a chance to sing and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And we were like, okay, we'll, you know, we'll figure it out tomorrow or whatever, whatever, whatever. So they left. And Terry was like, they can't sing this. And so, and we're like, yeah, we know. I mean, it's not that they couldn't sing, but for this particular song, the texture that we're fit. trying to do, yeah. it didn't fit. So that's when Terry came up with the idea is, I'm going to give them a spoken part. Oh, oh, wow. That was the olive branch. That was the olive branch. So we're going to do this. We're going to do the spoken part. But before the olive branch happened, oh, the next day, Phil, <laughs> the next day Phil came back to the studio, and uh, everybody was with him, but only he came in the room. And he kind of walks in the room, and he has this look on his face, and we said, "What's up, Phil? How's it going?" He says, "Good, good." And uh, we said, well, "What's going on?" And he goes, "I just have to say." that we're against the other girl being on the track. And Terry and I said, huh? And he says, I just have to say, we're against that other girl being on the track. Like he's reading a ransom note. Yeah, right. They is treating us right. good. Yeah. <laughs> we all chilling and shit. <laughs> so, so me and Terry look at each other, and he says it again. And then we said... Oh, 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 okay. You just have to, have say, to say you're against the girl being on the track. And he says, yes, 
I have to say, I mean, we said, we got you. We got you. Don't worry about it. We got it. Because we know what went home. He went home with the girl, you know, to the hotel. And she was in his ear all night or whatever the heck it was. They didn't get, they didn't get smoke and mirrors back then? No. No. And they was in their feelings. I would have known. I would have not known any different than, yeah. you know. Yeah. So it was, pre- it was very funny. So he did his thing. It's like, okay, Phil, you're off the hook. You told us what you needed to tell us, what you said you'd tell. That's great. We came in. Uh, we did, you know, Terry showed the girl, uh, Joanne, I think, did the part. And she said, here you go. This is the part you're doing, right? We're done with the song. The song's totally done. Uh, I don't know at that point whether they beefed to the record company or whoever it was. Mm. And we just said, okay. And we've, I don't think to this, I don't remember us ever, ever doing this on any other project. Certainly not to that point. But we just said, here's our thing. The songs that they brought, that they did, they can mix them however the heck they want to do it. They got it. The songs that we did, we're mixing exactly the way we want them. And as far as human goes, if we don't get to do it the way we want to do it, we're just taking it off the record. And they were like, no, 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 no. Exactly. Uh, no. You yeah. really did hit the alf button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Hit yeah. the alf button. <laughs> 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 But that might have been the only time that that happened. And and it was interesting because I've read some articles where Phil has talked about making the record now and he says we were puppets and whatever. He has a whole different kind of recollection of it than, than we do. And, you know, hey, that's the way, you know, but it's like you hired us to make your record. You had made your record basically as demos and you wanted us to do it our way. So basically it was like taking what they did and then I would play the parts or I would have them play the parts or whatever it was, but it was just you hired us. We did what you hired us to do. There was no puppet anything to me, so, and that was the only... <laughs> so I can assume that they didn't write I Need You Loving." Oh, no, 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 no. But did they write the last song, the song that closes the record, Nothing Else Even Matters or... Love, Love is, is All That Matters? matters? Love, yeah, did no, they write that? that? No, we wrote you that. Did? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, but I was going to say, like, if you're given the human league and you know their history, <laughs> it's it's very telling that you really brought them to your side of the fence. Mm-hmm. Brought them down to our world. Yeah. As opposed to, because I would have figured that you guys would have been like, all right, now it's, t- all right, so Prince's concept with the family was, you want to get some of that Duran Duran money. Right. You didn't think at one point, like, yo, now's really time for us to show Cash me all, all the all the all the middle <laughs> America like all the middle America AM radio shit that we've learned. We can now use them as the calling card, but it, it, no, because we didn't feel that they that that was what they necessarily were. I mean, they had obviously big records, but there was a reason that they had come to us anyway. To me, even with the big records that they had, because I remember Fascination was one of my. I mean, Don't You Want Me was great, but Fascination was my record. I love that. And yeah. So to me, the fact that they were coming to us was, you're coming to us for a reason, and it's not to make AM pop radio, it's to make Well, I'm just some saying, fun. like, a song like I Need You Lovin'. Yeah. You don't <laughs> think Alex would have tore the shit out of it? Oh, of course like, he would have. Of course he would have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. But it was fun. They Listen, they we played them stuff, and they picked the stuff they liked. They liked that song. They loved they loved that record. And we liked the idea of doing a record like that on them because it's not the kind of record you would expect, you know, to hear from them. So. Yeah, I, I did not expect that at all. <laughs> <laughs> totally did not expect that yeah, at all. Me and Zoe, we covered Human some years back. Like, 
on the on our eighties record. Oh, yeah, we covered y'all that did. Joint. That's right. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. So with, it's it's weird though, because it's like, I felt like Control was your most important record, but I actually feel like Heartbreak was your make or break record because what that allowed you to do was really cross the bridge into what young people were, you know, mm-hmm. are into, which, mm-hmm. you know, not even, I don't even consider it as like, oh, can Jam and Lewis handle New Jack Swing? But more or less like the standard of it, you know what I mean? Like it, I felt like that was a real make or break record for you that allowed you to then grab folks that are even younger. Like, did you see that? Did you even see that as a challenge or was it just like, oh, okay, well, we're just getting new edition and. Yeah, I think we just thought we'd just, we're just do a new edition. Like it's like in the moment, I, I don't think it's easy to look back historically and go and you know, that that was some sort of turning point. I mean, it was the first time that we really, uh, it was probably the first time we really adopted a lot of hip hop into what we were doing, or at least a lot of that kind of sound and a lot of, you know, was it a discussion between you two? Like, okay, now our straight up funk might be dated by 88, 89. We got to figure out what's going on with new Jack swing and that sort of thing. Like what, what was your impression? Like when you first heard the guy record and the key sweat record and 
love at first to listen. Absolute love. Um, matter of fact, I remember having a conversation when the Key Sweat record c- came out. I remember having uh, a conversation with Babyface about that. We were at a club somewhere. And uh, I remember we were talking about it. I said, man, you heard this dude, Key Sweat, man? And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I love that record. I love that record. That record sounds like y'all's record. Because it, sound, it was, if you, if you think about it to me, the New Jack Swing record, now I don't know what the first New Jack Swing record, but the first, for me, one of the first New Jack Swing records was actually Nasty. Um, and mm. the kind of fluty uh, string sound mm-hmm. on that, to me, is what, I want her was, but they were using Teddy was using the more synthetics. of a yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but that was that same thing. And I remember we were talking about that, and I and and I remember Facer might have been L.A. said, "Well, you know, Keith's cool, but you know who the real dude on that record is? Is is this kid uh, Teddy Riley? He's like the dude." And we're like, "Oh, really? Yeah, who's it? Oh, he produced the record." And we were like, "Oh shit, okay." So we went then on a Teddy Riley quest. At that point, <laughs> and, and trying to find you know other you know more records that he had done because it was just still brand new, but um, that was a that was an amazing record and an amazing album, too. I mean, so yeah, no, we love that. Um, we've always embraced pretty much what's out there. Uh, we've never really had the attitude of. Um, I mean, we certainly have things we personally like and don't like, but we've but never had the attitude of. You didn't scoff at some of the patches, like. Some of those like Stanley Brown cheesy saxophone. Yeah, like think of the saxophone like the greatest love of all. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> like you weren't scoffing at some of the patches. Like, all right, this is a little amateurish, and you know, no. Well, I don't think so. I think because you just, get, your like, patches were always classy. Like you guys always used just presets, though, right? Like you. Yeah, I was a I was a big preset guy. My I said in an article long time ago in Keyboard Magazine that somebody would give me a keyboard because because companies would start it was at that point where people would just give just us keyboards, your... right? And they go, man, this one's this one's great, man. And the great thing about it is, man, you can really tweak the sounds. And I said, we I don't want to tweak sounds. <laughs> Somebody's getting paid a bunch of money to put really great sounds in this. I shouldn't have to tweak it. I should go through the presets, and when I go through the presets and I don't come up with a song idea, that keyboard's going back. You know? Mm. So if I get so if I get a keyboard like um so we're you know, uh probably one of my favorite all time was uh in Sonic and, and you know, in Sonic's funny because in Sonic got no respect as a keyboard company. A none, but control. But they were simple. The horn hits. The horn hits on uh, when I think of you. Mm-hmm. Mirage. The sound on nasty. The the gong gong going all that. Right. Mirage. The little fluty sound on nasty. Yeah. Mirage. The Janet Jackson signature. Really? Because I was going to ask about really? that. Really? I was wow. about to ask about that. So wow. I said in an article I just mentioned. I said, "Oh yeah, that's a mirage." And we preset. Use. Presets. Like I could have those noises. Yeah, too. yeah, they're actually floppy disks because they're samples. They're floppy disks. <laughs> D'Angelo probably got yes. those. Let's <laughs> <laughs> wait for that. They're in a bag. Yeah, <laughs> So I mean, that was the thing. So that keyboard inspired. There would be, wouldn't be nasty without that sound. Okay, so these the keyboard inspired that sound. So I was a Sonic keyboard fan just from that. I remember they sent us a whole bunch of other keyboards. 
But the one they sent us was this keyboard called, a, I think it was called an MR76. And um, not to skip around, but Velvet Rope, 90% of that is MR76 keyboard. The drum loops, all the road sounds, all the... So you, you use all the like, stock stuff? I use all the stock stuff, yes. Because to That's me... That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is to me is... And, and obviously... And to not, and I can't diminish it. I mean, I can't not diminish it. I can't put enough importance on Steve Hodge mixed it. So Steve Hodge made it sound the best it could sound. But a lot of stuff, um, we talked about, uh, let's see, Body That Loves You, we mentioned earlier. I'm trying to think of another song. Anytime, Any Place, for instance. Um, Part of it is the way that you play the patches. Um, You know, a, a sax patch can sound totally cheesy if somebody plays it if they don't play it like a sax player like i'll tell you that one uh i'll give you one um that's the way love goes so the uh the guitar part that goes right no it's a s3 i don't even have a noise for that i'm sorry this is all i got oh my god really yeah so but but the way you play it, if you play it like a yeah, but if you play it like a if you play it like that's a, a keyboard, car, yeah, yeah, and, and so if you so but if you play it like a guitar player would play it, and see that's where Terry would come in, because Terry, if I did something like that, he'd say, guitar wouldn't play it like that, or bass player wouldn't play it like that, and so he always kept me. So whenever I played him a track, and I did like guitar, my little fake guitar stuff on it. If he said, oh, man, who'd, who'd you get to play guitar? You know you got something. I knew I, I had something. So anytime, any place is one where there's, it kind of sounds like a jazz guitar. This guy goes, bloom, 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 bloom. It sounds like a, like a. Um, West Montgomery. West Montgomery. Yeah. West Montgomery yeah. type or of thing. Ronnie, I was thinking of Ronnie. Uh, they, he just passed away. Ronnie Foster. Ronnie, Ronnie Foster. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, 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 not even Ronnie Foster. Uh, He's from London. Oh, Toby from Jamiroqua? No. Damn, like you got us. Yeah. Ronnie Jordan. Ronnie. I don't know. Ronnie Jordan from. Keep singing that here. Just don't stop. Somebody be looping. He passed away. Yeah, that I thought like you guys had Ronnie Jordan or right. somebody to. No, every like on that particular song, if I'm not mistaken, I think every instrument on that song is from the same keyboard, and it's all, it's all, uh, it's all stock sounds. Um, I'll give you one more uh, like that. If there's no guitars on if. Wow. <laughs> wow! Just think of the opening. That's yeah, some shit. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 no, that's, that's, this that's is the guitar. Sample, right? Okay, I can. But the wailing guitar, yeah. the guitar at the beginning. Okay, so oh, you oh. kind of you you mentioned something, which tells me that there's still a level of respect between you two. But what song have you two done, and which it could have gone to human league confrontational levels? Have you two ever argued? Terry and I? Yes. No. What? No. Have you we ever never... fist fought? No. What? Not even close. What do you... We haven't even raised... <laughs> we've never... 
We've never even raised our voices at Come each other. Come on, at least passive aggressive. Like we're passive aggressive. Yeah, like poke him in the eye or anything. <laughs> like, Steve, <laughs> step on his foot. <laughs> Nothing. No, we we never have. Um, it, it's you know it's a it's a unique relationship because it's over the years it's just kind of evolved into. Um, first of all, there's we're not joined at the hip. There's a thought that we're joined at the hip. And we do everything together. And I think if we did, there would probably be more of a, you know, a friction or something that could just happen just because of being in proximity to somebody so much. But um, we live different lives. We have, um, you know, for instance, um, uh, I, you know, well, here's a good example. I do an interview, although Terry's actually under, under the weather today. But I like talking music and, and that. And Terry does, too but not to the degree I do, you know, but it's what makes he'd Terry... be out after an hour of this. Yeah. Oh yeah. He would have been, he would have been long gone. He would have been <laughs> actually, he would, he would probably enjoy. Well, no, he wouldn't, <laughs> but, but he would, <laughs> but, no, no, but he, he, he would enjoy, he would enjoy talking to you. Like if we were at dinner and we were just hanging out and having dinner and talking, you guys, you guys would have a great conversation with him he he because he's he's such an amazing mind and also talking about his lyrics see the thing that's great about lyrics with him is that part of the beauty of a great lyricist is you can say what you need to say in a few words and i'm very long-winded and so that's the reason i think i'm not necessarily that good at lyrics i can say what i want to say but it just takes me too many words to say (laughs) okay and a perfect example is uh, the janet record uh, living in a world they didn't make mm-hmm. and uh, we had been watching it looks like the way CNN looks now pretty much uh, honestly but uh, just all kinds of just craziness in the world and, and, and school shootings and just all kinds of stuff and we just felt like we got to do a song that, that addresses that that it's not the kids fault it's the, the, the world that we've built as adults for the kids right what does that song need to be so we're like, we need Terry, right? Is it because it was just me and Janet talking about it? And Terry was actually at the time at our, then our new studio, putting, you know, we were building it at the time. Mm-hmm. So Terry walks in the door of our old place. We're still at our old place. He walks in the door with like carpet samples and all kinds of stuff. And we're like, Jam, what do you think about the carpet sample and the whatever, whatever? We're like, no, no, Terry, we need lyrics, man. We need lyrics. He said, okay, what's the concept? And I said, okay, because man, these kids, man parents are making the bad decisions and the adults are making the bad decisions and the kids pay for the mistakes that we make and such and such. And I go into this big, long thing. And Terry, at the end of it, just goes, living in a world they didn't make. Walks into the room 10 minutes later, hands Janet the lyrics and goes, here you go. Wow. So. Damn. Yeah. So that's. And then he goes. No, which carpet What's sample? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and Terry's and Terry's a really good multitasker too. So he could he could do that. His brain could work like that. But but that was the thing. But <clears throat> because we're not joined at the hip, and we each have things that we do really well, even in picking projects, very much like picking, uh, you know, what radio show to do, for instance, or, or a podcast or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the decision is. Sometimes we, if we, neither of us feel it, then it's just a no, you know. If one of us feels it, then it's like, you know, we'll explain to the other why we feel good about it. And we just kind of know now. 
you know. Um, I remember I mentioned uh, your show to Terry, you know, three, four, five months ago and stuff. And I said, you know, we should do Questlove show, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, what's the show about? And I said, oh, it's just, it's just really good. It's really in-depth and, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. He said, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, it sounds, okay, it's interesting. You know, and it's like, <laughs> you know, you go, but I, I love, I love Questlove. Yeah, okay. But not, I love, I, I'll do it, I just, I love Questlove. Okay, so, cool, okay. Um, so I know that going into it. It's like, okay, you cool. So then is. I'm like, okay, is that something? But no, I, I really want to do it, and, and, I, and I think it would be interesting to do it. would be a great conversation, whatever. Okay, so that's what, but we do projects the same way. And I swear to God, there's, there's, there's people that will swear to God that Terry does all the work and I don't do a thing. What? And and there's and there's people that will swear that I you do, do all, all the work, work and Terry, don't and Terry do doesn't do a thing. I swear I to God. I feel like you're Penn and he's Teller. Like, <laughs> you're J.D. No, 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 Silent I'm, Bob. No, no, In I a speaking way. And, and, yeah. and, no, no, no. I, I think he does the work, but because we don't have a gauge for his personality that I'm just trying to figure out, okay, Pinatello is an interesting analogy. I thought you were the lyrics guy because you talk the most of the two. Right. No. I'm, That's crazy. I'm not. I'm not. I remember um, one of the songs I actually did a lot of the lyrics on was Just Be Good to Me. And I remember thinking the whole time I was writing it, this is way too long. And <laughs> Six minutes. Yeah. I, I remember that. I remember that. And, 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 and I remember, um, it's funny because I, I also remember like Saturday Love. Like I came up with the the hook on that, <laughs> of course you did. and I was like so embarrassed. Like when I was at my house, and matter of fact, the, the the piano I wrote it on is the piano that's downstairs, which is also the the Tender Love piano, by the way. But um, I had it in my little apartment up. You know, I had my first little apartment stuff, so I had the piano in there, right? So anyway, I, I write Saturday Love where I have the, the chords and stuff, and I got the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, one, and I'm at home and I'm jamming, and I'm thinking, oh man, this is cool. So I get to the studio and I'm like, Terry, I got this song, man. He said, Yeah, yeah, what is it? And I said, It's like, um, uh, it's like the days of the week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's already sounding stupid now, coming out of my mouth. Well, sing it, man. And I said, Um. Okay, well, it's like uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. <laughs> and he starts laughing. He says, oh, that's funny. He says, like, Sesame Street? I said, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, I said forget it. Forget it. Forget it. Anyway, he said, no, no, no. It's cool. It's cool. I, I get it. I get it. I get it. So anyway, we do the song. Here's what we, how much we really didn't think a lot of the song. The first and second li- lyrics. Exact same. Exact same. Second verse, same oh, as the first. Oh, Second verse, same as the first. Damn. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's just a different melody. They just sing them different. <laughs> Why did you freaking say... <laughs> it's the same. It's a lazy afternoon. Yeah, well, we just didn't... We don't know how to write hooks. <laughs> it was like, we got to turn this record in tomorrow. Just repeat it over again. So... Yeah, so that that was the thing. So that was what we thought of it, and, and even when we put it on the album, we were kind of like, eh, eh. and we I remember we released uh, "I Think You Look Good to Me" as the first single, and "You Look Good to Me" was doing well, and it's moving up the charts, and it was everything was doing well, and I remember it got to about I don't know thirty or whatever, e. and it just kind of started slowing e. down. I told you, e. and we were like going, 
what the hell's going on? And so we called the record company. We said, well, what are we, what's going on with the record? And they said, hey, man, everybody's jumping to this Saturday love cut. Right. And I'm like, oh, told you. Because I remember, too, the, the challenge was if you could really get it in the right cadence, like, you felt good about yourself. Yes. I remember the time yeah. when I finally got it. I was like, yes, yep. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday, Friday, Saturday, love. Weren't you three when that came it out? It didn't matter. Yeah. I, I remember singing it in the It was a mirror. sense of accomplishment. <laughs> what? In nursery school. Sure. Was Speaking of which, uh, I've I seen Sherelle open up for New Edition once. Yeah. Rick Ren and Dan Ooh, were like, man. dog, they were so freaking charismatic yes, in were. their own. Yes. How come Rick Ren and Dan were not their own group? They were. Who was Rick Ren and Dan? Rick Ren and Dan was like, like you remember when Prince had his Jerome and his, the, yeah. the two bodyguards, like yeah. as his pips? Okay. She yeah. had her own pips. Yes. Oh, okay. And they was like funky. They were like straight up. Like I wanted them to be a group. They, oh, wow. they were a group. Wait, Rick Ran and Dan. They were a group. They were a group. Rick Who Ran and recorded Dan. them? Uh, well, we started recording them. You and, produced a song for Rick and, Ran and Dan. Yes, but tragically, Ran uh, Randy uh, died in a motorcycle accident. He was Sherelle's husband, right? Sherelle's. Uh, I don't think they were married, but okay. certainly her, her boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah, Randy Rand. Yeah, Randy Rand. Oh, Randy Rand, who wrote yeah. uh, "Let's Spend the Night" for Johnny Gill. Yes, yes. Yeah. that's him. Yeah, so he was. So Randy, <laughs> how do you know that? Yeah, I, that's one of my favorite albums. I love that album, man. <laughs> so that's my job. I'm supposed to know. That's why I'm here. That's why I got the red headphones. <laughs> no, but Randy, Randy was amazing, and I remember oh, uh, Sherelle introduced us to him, and uh, she said, "Yeah, I want you to meet my boyfriend." Uh, this is Randy, and uh, son, 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 he's got this group, Rick, Rand, and Dan, and whatever, whatever. And we said, okay, cool, we'll, we'll check him out, we'll check him out. And then, um, so when we did You Look Good to Me, we put him in the video. We put Rick, Rand, and Dan oh, okay. in the video right. of You Look Good to Me. And the plan was that, yeah, we were going to make a record with them. Like, that was the next thing we were going to do. Um, they were the first cats i ever seen do the snake. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. The first time I seen that, I seen more Soul Train, and we all started doing this shit. Yeah. No, they were uh, they were crazy talented uh, as a group, and uh, but but Randy as a writer and producer, he did a lot of songs. He did. Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm 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 totally blanking. But he he produced a lot of a lot of songs for us uh, back in the day. He was very very talented. Super nice dude, but he got a motorcycle, man. He just was, wow. you know, and just a motorcycle accident. Damn. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about perspective uh, records and, like, how did, when you guys first started, was Sounds of Blackness your very first act? Yes, yes. That was the very first. Very first act. And, and Sounds of Blackness was, the story with them was. Um, did all 40 of them sign that contract? I was wondering about that split. <laughs> No, hundred fifty dollars no. a week. Yeah, uh, exactly. y'all prince yeah, right, now, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. See how optimistic y'all are now. <laughs> you know the ironic thing about that, about that statement though, which is very true. It's one of the reasons that we never um, criticize Prince's decision because you know it's kind of like it's tough to criticize the boss if you've never been a boss, and so. Um, we didn't agree with a lot of things that Prince did, but we were in the position we were in because of the things he did do or, or, you know, or whatever those decisions were. We looked at where we were at and realized we wouldn't have been there without those decisions. 
even the decision for, to for, to kick us out the group, which was the best decision. Yeah. He could have made for us because we would have left the group on our own. It was like, no, we love being with the group. So you never know. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was that, you know, Sounds of Blackness, like, that's, that's an expensive group to get around. And we and mm-hmm. we, and we we dug in our pocket to do it because we believed in what it was. Um, Janet was actually, uh, we took Janet to a show when we were working on uh, Rhythm, Nation. Rhythm Nation. Right. And we took her to a show. And the whole show, she was nudging me. Uh, because the whole thing about Sons of Blackness, it was all celebrated all the different kinds of black music. It wasn't just, it was gospel, but it was jazz, it was blues, it was everything. And every time they'd launch into a different thing, she'd nudge me and go, oh, they're doing a jazz song. Oh, they're doing a gospel song. Oh, they're, you know, and it was like, yeah, Janet, that's what they do. Like, we knew them because we would play like on, on the same gigs as them as Flight Time. We would play like. They were around that long? Yeah. Oh, they, yeah. They were around. The they first were around, album was in like, the 70s. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Same members? Same members. Same and same Nesby? director and wow. Nesby. Gary Hines. And Nes- Gary Hines. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the director. Record. With a nice fro. Yep. Okay. They were like, guys, that's kind of like Ladysmith Black Mombazo. Yeah. Like, they were, wow. Yeah, exactly. So so they, they were around forever. So when we started the label, and, and so Janet said, she said, wow, you should sign them. And we thought, yeah, we should. That's a good idea. We should sign them. And... Um, so I remember we talked to Gary after that show and we said, you know, we want to make a record with you guys. We're starting a label. And our theory was real simple to me, which was we wanted to build a big, tall building. But in order to build a big, tall building, you got to dig a foundation. And Sounds of Blackness was our foundation. And Terry would always say, you know, sometimes you got to give people not what they want, but what they need. And they don't know they need it. Until they hear it, and then they go, oh, man, I, I needed this. We needed you, that. Yes. And that's what Sounds of Blackness was. Now, it was funny because, there, were, you know, the business always comes into it. So <clears throat> we were at A&M Records, and um, I remember uh, A&M was still Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss, the original two A&M mm-hmm. guys, right? And I remember doing the record, and I remember uh, the, the A&M, the guys that were kind of running it at the time, uh, they said we had them. I think Sounds of Blackness was in. I want to say Philadelphia. I want to say for like, uh, um, a, like a conference or something. Maybe uh, I am or something. I oh am. yeah, I am. Yeah. Okay. So we had them there for the conference. So we said, uh, and it wasn't the whole group. We had a touring group. Okay, we had a touring group of twenty, of twenty. Right. So we said, let's. We want to take them to New York and uh, you know take them to some radio and do some stuff. Optimistic had just come out as a single. And they were like, oh, you don't have a budget for it. There's no budget for that. And we're like, well, we're already in Philadelphia. I'm just like, let's just go up to New York. No, there's no budget for it. So we're like, okay. So we just went in our pockets and just said, here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to New York. And at the time, I can't remember. Uh, I, th- I think Frankie might have still been at B- BLS at the time. I can't oh, remember. Wow. Right? And we just called the radio stations. It's like, hey, it's Jam and Lewis. So can we bring a group by? And everybody was like, yeah, yeah, bring them bring by. And we'd bring them to the station, and they'd sing and blow everybody away. And then we'd be like, we think we'd be there for 15 minutes. We'd be on there for two hours, right? Wow. So we'd leave the station. The phones would all be lighting up and stuff. And then we'd go to, like, uh, what, Sylvia's, I think, was the place back then, uh, mm-hmm. right? So we'd go to Sylvia's, and we'd, and we'd eat. You know, we'd feed everybody. But then they'd treat everybody to a, to a show. The chefs, we'd have the chefs and everybody come out and stuff, and right? 
So when we left New York and went back to L.A., well, to Minneapolis, actually, not to L.A., when we went back to Minneapolis, the next week the record got to, like, I don't know, on both, whatever the the two outlets were at the time, were both like 60, 70 spins a week, like huge. And they're all going, you know, all the marketing, all the people that, they're going, what happened with this, what's going on with the Sounds of Blackness record? And I said, well, we took them to New York, like we said, and, you know, they 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 have that kind of impact. We just need to get them out. So I remember Herb called me, and he said um, he said, "Hey, uh, Jam, it's Herb." Um, and I said, "Oh, Herb!" I said, "Great news, man!" I said, "We're number one most added, uh, the Sounds of Blackness record, and uh, we're this and that. You know, we got this many spins, and we got whatever, whatever." And Herb says, "I didn't call to hear that bullshit." He said, I called to tell you that I am so proud to be associated with this record and you guys that you brought this gift to us at A&M Records. And I was like, wow. I said, okay, thanks, man. He said, that's it. So I, so, so I called, so I called, so I called uh, his, uh, his girl, his assistant, who is still his assistant uh, to this day. And I said, yeah, I just got a call from Herb about the record. I said, is he is he there? I just I f- forgot I was going to say something to him. And she said, well, you know, it's the funny funniest thing. You know, he drove into work. And I kept thinking, why isn't he coming in? Like, he's just sitting in his car. And he he's was just listening, listening to, to it. And then she said, and then when he came in, I could tell he had been crying. Yeah. Whoa. Right? And... I was like, wow. I said, okay. I said, okay, well, thanks. Don't bother him, you know. I said, it's all good. We spoke already, whatever. She she said, okay. But the fact that that record had that um, impact on him, it said so much about, to me, that we were doing the right thing, but also that we were with the right partners who understood what it was we were trying to do and our vision of what we wanted to do and what we wanted the record company to be. Unfortunately... Polygram came in and bought them out, cashed them out for, I don't know, 300 million or whatever the heck it was. And what I call the new A&M, which was Al Cafaro and Milt Olin, came in. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Milt was uh, just a numbers guy, business affairs guy, and uh, everything was about how much something cost or whatever. And Al, bless his heart, was just a, uh, he inherited us. And he looked at our deal and saw that our deal was against his bottom line because our deal was a, it was a huge deal because Herb and Jerry were like, we, at first they said, we can't afford you. But then when they knew the polygram money was coming, they called and said, we can afford you now. (laughs) Right. So it was cool. And, but it never was the same right down to the Grammys. I remember that year at the Grammys, A&M had, uh, they were in New York that year, and I remember A&M had, uh, I think, The Police or Sting or whatever, and Sheryl Crow, and they had all these records that were up for awards. The only one that won a Grammy that night was Sounds of Blackness. And I remember running into Milt Olin on the, in the elevator, or no, coming down the stairs somewhere. And, uh, and I said, hey, Milt, I said, great night, huh? And he said, yeah, yeah, great for you guys. And I, and I said, what do you mean great for you? And he said, oh, great, this is great for you. Yeah, you guys won. And I said, well, we won. I thought we're partners. Oh, yeah, 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 that, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And oh. I thought, man, I thought, okay, so here's where we're at now. We're from her calling me crying 
to this. And it was doomed. It was doomed. Mint condition. I mean, the records that were successful were successful despite, you know, the folks that were there. That's why, as a Christmas record, the, the well, Sounds the, of Blackness. Sounds Black- of Blackness, we did this, yeah, Soul Holiday. I mean, but the, once again, it's, I mean, it was like all the things that we wanted to do, we just did them. Is but this we just why reached she in our pocket. went to Virgin? Who? Janet. Janet. Um, no, because this was after that. This was, this was, see, we're talking, Janet went to Virgin in 93. 93. Sounds of Blackness were 91. 91. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So, but, but that was part of the problem is because we got asked why, when we brought Sounds of Blackness, the question we were asked, uh, not by Herb and Jerry, who Herb obviously loved what we brought, right? Mm-hmm. But the Al Kafaro Milt Olin regime asked, we gave you all this money, why didn't you bring us another Janet Jackson record? Or bring us an act like Janet Jackson? And it's like, right. well, because we have a plan of what we're going to do. We're going to build that. I mean, just watch what we do. Just let us do our thing. We know what we're doing, or at least we think we do. But we're going to create some great records for you. And so we did the, we did the Sounds of Blackness record. We followed that up with the Mint Condition record. The very first one. The very first one. Mint. Yeah, Meant to be Mint. So Al listened to that record, said, there's no hits on this record. We said, wow, okay. So we said, okay. So um, Sheila Eldridge, who you guys probably know. Yeah. So Sheila, we went to Sheila and we said, Sheila, what can we do to drum up some support for, uh, we got this single coming out, uh, Pretty Brown Eyes, whatever, we're breaking my heart. And she said, oh, let's do a, uh, let's go to the colleges in the D.C. area and stuff and we'll do like a, a video contest and whoever comes up with the best video. That. You remember that? Yes, and it was a Howard Girl. Was yes. The Howard Girl one. Yes. Yes, but not for the second single. For, for the, It was Forever for in Your Eyes. Eyes. Yeah, Forever in Your Eyes. Yeah. Yep. So that was the concept. So Terry went out with him in like a Winnebago. Like, he was staying at, like, hotels that didn't have fax machines. They didn't even have fax machines at the yeah. hotel. I'm like, hey, man, can I send a fax to you, Terry? Man, I ain't no fax at this, at this Roach Motel. Yeah, right. Nigga made a comfort in. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so it was like one of those kinds of things. So all of a sudden, I remember we're sitting in a marketing meeting. And, uh, you know, everybody's sitting around the table. And everybody's talking about, uh, you know, you name whatever indie white act you could sold 100 copies somewhere. Oh, we sold 100 copies in Des Moines. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and then we got uh, Sticks and Stones over here, and they sold uh, 50 copies in, uh, in uh, you know, Minot, North Dakota. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what do you guys got? End of the meeting. What do you guys got? And we said, okay, well, um, we have, and the guy goes, oh, my God. You guys got 75 spins at the pop station in D.C. What is this song? Who is this group? Hmm. We're like, oh, yeah, Mint Condition. Oh, my God, this record is. How'd that happen? And I said, well, Terry got in a Winnebago and we did a video contest. And they were like, oh, my God. And the next thing you know, we had a top five pop record on the album with no hits. No hits. Literally, we had to prove ourselves over and over and over. No matter what we did, we came out with a low-key record next, straight to number one on the R&B charts. That was the I Got a Thing for You. I Got a Thing for You. You know something? Now that you mention it, the fir- do you remember the first time we met? No. Oh, yes. At college. 
at that college. Yes, outdoor uh, yeah, space I, I forgot. He, yes. You, yes, yes, I do remember. With, uh, what was her name? India? A little Red Boot. Uh, yes. Uh, Angel Grant. Angel Grant. Angel, 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 yes, Grant. Angel Grant. That's right. Yeah, I forgot that you guys, and that's the thing. When someone, when the, the college promoter said, hey, um, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis out there, they want to know if they can open for you guys real quick. And we, like, <laughs> almost lost it. Like, who? That's funny. Like, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis want to open for us? It, like, we totally didn't get the context that it was in. And I was just mind blown that you guys were that accessible. You were like, our idols freaking promoting with your artists. Like, I'd never seen such a thing where it's like, you know. We were always big believers in that, though. Because even when we knew that Perspective, we knew we were done in Perspective. Our deal was almost up. How 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 was the deal? Was it like for a number of albums that you had to put was, out, or no? Was it, it was a just years? it was just a number of years, and it kind of changed as it happened because when we first started, we went in just it was a joint venture, okay. and we went in and we basically were going to just release you know three records a year or whatever. That then turned in they were shutting the whole black music department down of A and M. There was a there was a whole thing where a lot of the companies started just losing the black music yeah. department. So what they said to us is, why don't you guys just take over the black music department, which was great, because we, in, we inherited the Barry White record, which nobody thought was a hit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, with uh, Practice What You Preach, Preach and all Preach, that stuff, yeah. right? And they said, oh, that's not a hit. And we, like, took it over. And the funny thing was, we took the record over, but then when the record went number one, they took it. yeah, it was A&M. Oh, A&M, yeah, we did it. And we I didn't going, know that. And okay. we were going, okay, well, we actually <laughs> championed and worked that song. But, okay, anyway, so... Um, as we got toward the end of the deal, we had this group called um, Solo. Yeah, I was about to ask oh, you. Oh, discovered, yeah. discovered them on a street corner in New York. Um, actually fell in love with them. Made the record. And that was the only record, probably, I would say, on A&M that they really... I remember Al Cafaro coming to town and saying, we want you guys to stay. And we're going to show you what we can do with this solo record. And I think we ended up doing like 800,000 units on that record. So it was a very successful record. They actually got us our only time ever working with uh, Hype Williams. We actually got a a real video budget (laughs) and, you know, all of those things. But what we knew we were leaving. So our whole thing was we had an Ann Nesby record and we had the Mint record with... um, uh, it was what kind of man would I definition be? Of definition, definition, definition of a, of a man. man. Yeah, definition of the band. So we had those records, and we wanted to make sure that when we left, those records were set up as good as possible. Like, we can get you to the goal line. You guys got to get it over because we're not going to be there, but we're going to get it as far as we possibly can. And I remember um, we did, we wanted to go visit the branches, right? Because, you know, there's people that are working in these branches because this is still in the uh, the physical distribution, right? So you're taking records to stores. You're doing this, right? Our whole thing was, man, let's go visit these people. And we'll take Mint Condition with us and we'll take uh, Ann Nesby with us. And, and that's we, important? That was the It was the most important thing. Well, they didn't think it was important. We thought it was important. So once again, we financed it ourselves. We just did it ourselves. So what we did is we went, we called the branch, and the branches were like, what do you mean you want to bring them by? We said, we just want to bring them by. Like, what time do you guys do lunch? You guys have like a lunch hour or something? You have like a lunchroom or something? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, we're coming. So the employees would all be in there eating lunch. We'd all bust in. We'd go, hey, we're jamming Lewis and whatever. And everybody go, oh, yeah, shit, they blew right? Y'all mind. must have started a trend because other in artists started doing yeah, that at yeah, distributions. Yeah, yeah. Of course yeah. they did. Yeah. Of course they did. Oh, because yeah, we, it was, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I think we did it too. 
It's important, though. It, it to me, it's important. It's like because how it, did you know that was important? Because it was we were getting to the age of um, it was fax machines. The beginning of the internet was happening. The idea cell phones were beginning to happen. It was kind of the idea that you didn't you know two way pagers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the the idea of personalization was out of it. You know where you weren't really spending personal time with people, and to me. That was getting lost. Plus, there was kind of this thing where the stars were here, but the people really in the trenches that were doing the work were getting no respect. And as people that we felt always felt we started in the trenches. I mean, I'm the guy, remember at the beginning of our thing, I'm at the record store telling the guy, order a thousand of these. And we can, I'm putting out my little playlist thing and I'm doing, I mean, that was my thing. And Terry, the same way, we were like entrepreneurs. We were like, no, 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 we got, it's about the personal interaction where if I tell somebody this record's going to be a great record, they trust me because I'm looking in, in the eye and I'm saying this. So if we actually bring the talent to them, when they're out there fussing with a, an account about, you know, well, we can only stock this many of them. And it, you've actually met the they person. Gonna, yeah, they're going to remember me. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like, no, no, no. We we met these people. They actually came. And what we would do is we'd visit the branch during the day. And then at night, we would rent a club out. And we'd have everybody come to the club. And we'd invite, you know, we'd Brilliant. say, bring your people, right? And then we'd do like a full-on performance. And we went to like about six or seven branches, and we did that. And I remember the day or the week we left, I remember what kind of man would I be was at number two. It was already set to go number one. We already had the spins. We knew we were set there. Um, Ann's record, I can't remember where we were at with Ann, but she was like getting ready to go top 10 urban. Like she was, she was there, so we were good. And I remember we left. And I remember the next week when What Kind of Man Would I Be went number one. I remember they called Mint, because Stokely told me, and they said, See what we can do now that Jam and Lewis are out the way. Wow. So, and we were laughed and we were like, because I remember they were at, at our studio. We were laughing and I said, okay. I said, well, just remember we were in the Winnebago with y'all. So just, just remember that. When it came time to do their next video, they told them there was no budget for it. And they called us right up and they said, they just told us there's no budget for the video. And I said, oh, yeah, they used to tell us that all the time. They said, well, our videos got made. And I said, yeah, because we took the money out of our pocket and made your videos. Wow. <laughs> you know, so that's what we that's what we dealt with. And, um, and you know, can I ask, though? Sure. Okay, so we we did an episode with Babyface, and he explained that the only way for LaFace to really be successful was that those two had to separate and... You know, Antonio stopped producing and become full-time CEO of the label. Yeah. Was there any point where you thought, okay, I'm going to handle all the music, or you handle all the music, and I'm going to go be Barry Gordy or Or Clarence? Yeah. President? Never. Yeah. Never, because um, that would have been Terry. Terry would have been the Barry Gordy. And he didn't want to do it. He liked doing music too much. Um, he has the business mind and all of that to do it. And he would sit on the marketing calls and sit on the promotion calls. I mean, it was great because we learned. I mean, when we in- inherited the music department, we learned every facet of the record company uh, business, which was fantastic. That was great. But 
we talked about it. It was about one of the shortest conversations we probably ever had. And it's like, Terry, would you ever think that you would want to do it? That's it. (laughs) That was basically it. I mean, that literally that was basically the conversation because yeah, no, he had no interest in doing that. He loved making music too much. And, uh, so no, we never really had that, that, that conversation. Um, and talking about perspective, the thing the thing I remember too, that I always thought always felt very proud of, and this includes L.A. to this day, <clears throat> when L.A. talks about because Face was very successful um, label, but L.A. to this day says to me like, man, y'all were like the label that everybody wanted to be because y'all had Sounds of Blackness, like you had like a real group that meant something and you had you know mint condition like a real band like the last real band that was out there and i remember that other companies would call for our stuff like our promotion people and that you know would be like hey can you send me such and such and such and we go who's that oh that's so-and-so over at atlantic or that's so-and-so <laughs> over whatever like the, the other labels had more respect for our product than our own. Than the own label. That yeah, was than our own label. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it was it was a crazy time. And, you know, but it, but it's, you know, it's about partnership, you know. There's a reason me and Terry get along and and, and we've been together for, for, I've known Terry for 45 years. And there's a reason why. There's also a reason why uh, a partnership with Herb and Jerry would have been great. We had a potential partnership that we thought we were going to have with Doug Morris, and then Doug Morris got kicked way upstairs at Universal. But Doug Morris used to be like somebody we really vibed with. He had a piano in his office. He was a great music Wait, guy. Wait, he's a music guy? Yes. Yes. That's what, I didn't know he was yeah. a musician. Yeah, no, he was. And, and that was the great, that was cool. And, when, when, and back when we mentioned uh, A Little Red Boat, and when you talk about Angel Grant, Flight time. Right that there. was when we did the label with uh, with Universal. That was the whole thing. That was Doug Morris's thing, and Doug loved Angel Grant, and he said, "I love this girl. I really get it. This is going to be great." And he would fly when he was flying from L.A. to New York. He'd stop through Minneapolis along the way, listen to the sessions, that kind of thing. So he was into it. Uh, around the time the record came out, he got kicked way upstairs to the head, right? Because his whole thing was. Universal was just a little boutique label. Mm-hmm. And his whole thing was, I'm going to show people how to make a label. This is how you're going to do a label. And so we were part of that kind of master plan that he had. So when that happened, all of a sudden now we're dealing once again with the business affairs guy. Monty Lipman. Uh No, it wasn't Monty. Um, he was a, like the attorney and stuff. He, he like ran stuff for a while. Um and it was super nice guy, but just no offense, he just wasn't the music guy. Like, we got into it to be, like, with another music guy, and that didn't happen. So, you know, it's just trying to, it's 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 all about the partnerships and, and, and the relationships at the end of the day. It doesn't really matter what the label is. If you, if it's the right people in there, it's anywhere is a great home if it's the right people. But sometimes it's just not, and then you find yourself, uh, you know, you're, you're just... You're just spinning your wheels, basically, because you're working really hard on something that you really believe in. But if the people aren't believing it with you, then nothing's going to happen with it. It doesn't really matter who you are. And that's it for part two of our conversation with Jimmy Jam. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Join us next week for the third and final installment in Questlove Supreme Flight Time Trilogy with Jimmy Jam. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. 
this classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.